Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on another episode of Bond by Numbers. This is a literary gun barrel episode, and these are the episodes where Josh and myself talk a little bit about the books, and they are deep dives into the source material. A couple of years ago, Josh, uh, you and I did a series on Ian Fleming, where we reviewed yeah. all of the 14 books, and today we're going to share, for the first time on Bombay Numbers, we're going to share a full episode, aren't we? We're going to share the entirety of our discussion on From Russia with Love, which was the fifth novel by Ian Fleming, wasn't it? Oh, those carefree days, and yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not the second movie, like it was in the uh, film series. No. What, what what are your memories of this book? I mean, without going into, you know, how we felt about it and giving away too much of the discussion that's going to follow, um, what, what are your memories of, of reading it? What are your memories of of talking about it with me? I remember re- while I was reading it, and uh, the structure in which it's written is that uh, the first half of the novel is the Russians planning the whole operation against 007. And then you see the second half of the novel, which is 007 reacting to all of their schemes and them trying to counteract them and everything leading up to, you know, to the general story that you got in the film. Uh, But I will say um, that I enjoyed all of that. Um, I enjoyed the the structure. I found it very experimental in that way. And it made me look upon Ian Fleming as more than just kind of a super spy techno thriller writer. You know, this Mm -hmm. was more uh, signs of him, you know, possibly becoming a great author if he if he deigned to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's well said, and you summarized it nicely. I felt quite the same. I enjoyed this when I first read it. I enjoyed it when I reread it for our series. Uh, we won't say here where it ranked for us among the fourteen uh, Fleming publications, but we'll just say that it's a solid story. If you like the film, you'll probably like the book. But there are some differences for sure. Yes. There are some definite um, nuances that we don't get in the film, and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, we we decided to release a full episode this time around, didn't we? Because a couple of our listeners have commented that they quite like these little tie-in episodes, which we just kind of thought would be little bonus features that we could add about 20 minutes or a half hour. A nice way of getting some of our older content into this more fresh and current series. But some people have uh, said they really liked it. And so that that's really great to hear. And for that reason. Uh, and not to mention it's cheap as hell. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite easy to put this content out there because it's already done. Although I should say it's But still... we did put effort into it originally, so oh, it's not Christ, like yeah. and yeah, we are plagiarizing our own stuff <laughs> That's to, right. to, to truth. Yeah. yeah, we're ripping ourselves off on this one. But no, the truth is um, we didn't have uh, we didn't have the, the means at the time really, wasn't it, to get as as, as wide an audience and to share with uh, as many people. Um, what what we did. And it's nice that people are interested in it. So what started out as just a couple of uh, little bits of our conversations from that previous series, uh, which we were putting together every five or six film reviews and then sharing with you, we're, we're going to try to share some, some full pieces for you. So that's, that's, right. that's great. Yeah, we hope you enjoy the show. And uh, if you haven't read From Russia With Love, then why not pick it up? Take a couple of days, enjoy the pace, and then come back and join us for the, the literary review. Uh, that's right. Please enjoy. Okay, thanks, guys. Cheers. Gun Barrel with myself, Bowman, and the BFG. How are you doing? 
I'm doing just fine, Bowman. Uh, you're doing yourself. I'm, I'm pretty good, buddy. You're, you're doing uh, you're doing fine, but your voice uh, somewhat betrays your words. It's a little grainy, but I'm sure throughout the process we'll get ourselves caught up to some good receptions. Let me just uh, move over here just a little bit, adjust something, uh, just tweak something here. Magical. Whatever you've done has worked a treat. Hmm. Maybe there's better reception on in my acoustics on my in my uh, bedroom than sorry studio on the left hand <laughs> side. Could be. Anyway, look, buddy, uh, it's great to have you back a month and a day, uh, or a month and two days, after we looked at the fourth Ian Fleming novel. We're here to discuss From Russia with Love, and this episode five has been entitled, or has been, I suppose, aptly titled, Pimping for England. How do you feel about that? I feel very good about that. I have this image of M as kind of like this uh, very kindly Fagin, like gig, uh, like uh, master um, male madam, and Bond is like his uh, pimp, is like his his little boy, is the boy that he pimps. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a genderized uh, twist on madams and whorehouses, with a bit of Oliver Twist thrown in, with a bit of uh, espionage thrown in at the same time. Uh, a little bit pimping for England. That's how Bond described his job on the plane. Anyway, Let the windows begin. Yeah, yeah. The book really doesn't doesn't really carry a lot of that vibe, but uh, nevertheless, I think yeah. Ian would have dug it. Let's uh, let's fire on. Let's let's jump into this thing from Russia with Love, the fifth Ian Fleming Bond book. By now, Fleming is a uh, a household name in a lot of corners of the UK and starting corners in America. Um, now, and by this, and of course, by after this book, uh, he'll be more than a household name. He will, yes. And um, if 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 you're, I mean, if you're keen, I'll just jump in with some publication information as we always do, and then we will talk about the book, give you some time to do a plot summary, dig into it all, and finish up with our angles. Right. Let's let's talk about From Russia with Love, shall we? This is a book I know that uh, we've both been looking forward to chatting about. So. From Russia with Love. Uh, I made some notes here about the publication information that I found. Um, if you got any research yourself that you want to throw in, then by all means, let's do it. But um, real there was only really one thing I was trying to research, and we'll get into that when we talk about equipment. Because to me, I think this was the first Bond novel that I read that I found some of the equipment being used a lot more of something that you know the Q branch of the of the film universe would create you know in comparison to the to the more general equipment realistic equipment of the previous uh, uh film yeah uh, books i should say yeah and we yeah so we'll hear about your research when we talk about our angles or perhaps more fittingly when we talk about the equipment in the plot um right so publication information this book uh fleming's fifth bond adventure was released or published rather by cape on the 8th of april 1957 and was carried a few weeks later by Macmillan in the USA. And by this time, like we were saying, Fleming's a bit of a household name. The book was selling well. And if you remember Diamonds Are Forever, we were talking about Anthony Eden, the prime minister at the time who visited after the Suez crisis, the GoldenEye estate, and Fleming and he were friends. And he kind of went there to recuperate from his health. Because from everything I understand, and I did look into this on a couple of sources, that Suez crisis really broke him, not just politically, but kind of personally. I can see that. Yeah. Well, anyway, this this visit uh, obviously raised Fleming's pro, pro, profile, pardon me, profile in the media and <clears throat> the serialized, yeah, 
the serialization of this story in the Daily Express newspaper um, helped as well to promote further sales of the book. I kind of thought it was funny that it was in the Daily Express newspaper because um, Bond himself claims only to read the Times, which he goes on about in here. But well, <laughs> anyway, it had more to do with his friendship, I think, with Max Aitken, didn't it, Lord Beaverbrook? Yeah, I think Bond reads the Times, and Bond's Bond's a type that reads the Times. He's a Times that likes his brown pickled eggs from a farm somewhere in particular <laughs> yeah. place in his jams and all that. Yeah, so totally. Bond's a particular individual in, in, in himself. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the book sold well and was boosted further in 1961 when JFK, the president, said that this was one of his top ten favorites, uh, his favorite books. He said that in a Life magazine article, I think, or an interview in March, if I'm not mistaken. I don't actually have that date, but I think I read it was March. Anyway, um, yeah, so obviously that helps because it introduced to readers of Life magazine um, the president's favorite books, one of which were these, or was this. I got a selection of reviews. I like to see what the reviews at the time thought of the book because that's kind yeah, of what we're I'm, doing as well. I'm, I'm curious to see because this is probably considered one of his most famous novels. Well, so yeah. I'm, and I'm curious to see what the reception was. Posterity certainly tends to regard this as one of, Fle uh, one of Fleming's greatest stories, one of the best of the Bond. Um, Thanks to a certain president. Yes, largely to a certain president, but... Um, mostly positive, the reviews for From Russia With Love at the time. Uh, Maurice Richardson, who we've quoted before here on the show, um, <clears throat> from the Observer uh, newspaper, called it a stupendous plot to, trop, to trap Bond. The um, Oxford Mail at the time, an anonymous critic, wrote that uh, Ian Fleming's in a class by himself. The Times Literary Supplement, Julian Simmons, who we've also quoted here before, um, said that this was Fleming's tautest and most exciting, brilliant tale in line with modern emotional needs. Now, I think we'll talk about what those emotional needs are exactly maybe throughout this episode. But huh. Strong the, sensations, to yes, put a uh, chapter uh, name. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the LA Times um, credited From Russia With Love as bringing the espionage novel up to date. And at the time, according to Robert Kirsch, writing for the LA Times, the espionage novel was dying a pretty poor death. Uh, but it wasn't all positive. Anthony Boucher writing for the New York Times, who was a crime writer himself, and who his uh, Fleming's biographer, I read, seems to uh, think that Boucher is not just an anti-Bond guy, but also an anti-Fleming guy. And I'm not quite sure if there was a bit of envy here on Boucher's part, but we've seen three of his reviews, and neither of them have been positive, and this one wasn't either. He claimed that this was Fleming's longest and poorest book, and that there was only a veneer of literacy within it. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but that idea was kind of echoed... Uh, well, no, it wasn't. Not that idea. The well, New York Times is quite a... Getting a bad review from the New York Times is quite a slam, so... Even if you get good reviews from anyone else, it's still going to wrinkle, you know? It is. Yeah, you're right. And the Times, though, Bond's favorite newspaper, um, felt that the general tautness and brutality of the story left the reader uneasily hovering between fact and fiction and weren't entirely supportive of the text either. Um, so it's, you know, interesting. That was an anonymous critic as well. But anyway, regardless of what the critics thought, uh, positive or negative, after the film adaptation in 1963, paperback copies of this, the pan paperback specifically, exploded, rising from 145 to 642,000 in just, in just five years. I mean, that's a rise of nearly half a million in publications. So obviously the films are starting to in you know a few years time they'll be starting to bring back um fleming's 
sales. And I think Fleming's later books, when the films are kind of running at the same time, we're going to have an interesting publication history to discuss there too. So yeah, that's from Russia with Love in a nutshell, publication-wise. Um, I don't know how you felt about those. You, you agree, disagree with any of those comments? Um, I think I, I, th I have my own one or two nitpicks with the storyline. Um, yep. Sorry, with, with the book as a whole. Yep. I think the story is pretty taut and uh, there's definitely stronger, more multi-faceted uh, characters, but um, I, 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 don't, I found some of like the prose and some of the writing. There's some great passages in that book that really, I don't know, took me in, that really brought me into the story, into the world. And uh, some of the violence was, I, th I think the last comment about, uh, you know, being a bit too violent where you, you're stuck between fact and fiction and stuff. That's more of the sensibility of I think of the reader of the readers at the at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at you know modern audiences now, like watching like HBO shows and stuff like that, and there are people who complain about those shows, and there's people who are just like, I just think it's a great story and a great narrative, and uh, you know, like good art is supposed to provoke you and stuff like that. So I think it right. really depends on your artistic divide or your opinion on that matter. All right. Fair point. Uh, I'll save yeah. my opinions for our discussion. I know you're kind of doing the same thing, but we will save our full opinions for our discussion. But right now, Josh, uh, I'm going to accompany your plot summary with some of John Barry's music from From Russia With Love when it was a film. Uh, just something nice and quiet. The Spectre music. So, yes. take us away, Josh, Spectre. From Russia With Love plot summary from russia all right so the book is broken into two parts uh we have the plan and the execution um this is very different from the previous uh fleming novels is because we, we don't have a fully linear storyline and from one perspective well it's a linear storyline but it's it, it, the, the, the switch of perspectives is very interesting uh, the point of view that that we have uh, in the plan, we see the whole operation that goes down in this story uh, devised by the Russians uh, through the smir through the Smirsh uh, Death to Spies uh, dir dir Directorate in, in Moscow. We see how the plan is is uh, formed and hatched, and uh, and the players that are that are that are that are being lined up for the uh, execution which is the second half, where 95 pages in, James Bond comes into the story. Now, that's just the, the narrative structure. I just wanted to mention that uh, just on the basis of how it's different from the previous books. So, uh, in, in the plan sequence, we're introduced to uh, Donovan Grant, Granitsky, as he's called by the Russians, uh, this Irish... Um, Irish-born son of a of a German uh, wrestler, uh, or sorry, some sort of sort of not not a was it was it a wrestler? Or was it a strongman? I was a strongman, I think, but a strongman at a circus. Could have been, yeah. been a wrestler and, and, too. Yeah. Well, anyways, in, in Southern Ireland, this 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 Southern Irish girl, she went to a circus and uh, hormones acted up, and she went with you know she lay in the grass and took a tumble with a uh, German strongman. And the result of this was uh, Sorry, Donovan Grant. Did you, say, did you say took a tumble? <laughs> took a tumble. Yes. Took, took a tumble with the German strongman, and the result was uh, D D Donovan Grant, a character that um, 
we're in, we're introduced to all his whole backstory, which is very lurid and very vivid and very interesting and definitely put a lot of color uh, into the character that we encounter on screen years later, uh, that we, that people would encounter on screen years later. Um, and to me, the performance, I don't, I don't want to talk about the, the, the movies hardly at all here, but I really see that Shaw must have, Robert Shaw must have read this book because I think he captured that character's personality perfectly in the film. Yeah, uh, I don't dis- I don't disagree with you. Yeah, but anyways, so we're introduced to Grant, and then who is sent, who is called, who's 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 uh, basically being kept in a safe house on the in the in the Crimea on the what's called the Russian Riviera, and uh, he's getting a massage from his uh, this this young peasant girl who's sent to come in. And he's being minded by this by Smirsh agents. Uh, you know they, they keep him healthy. He's a, he, he's an assassin. Uh, he's called in to Moscow, and uh, when he arrives in Moscow, they're they're the meeting um, Smirsh Smirsh Death Despise the uh, the the execution arm of the of the KGB is basically setting up a plan to uh, cause a blow to Western intelligence, and it's through this General G, uh, the head of this directorate, that the plan is devised. Uh, well, the decision is made by the board to humiliate Western intelligence somehow. And this, it was first decided that M was the target, uh, but instead they needed much more of a humiliating uh, attack the British pride, and this is to go after their best, of course, James Bond. So this is where we're introduced to Kronstein, who is this uh, mastermind chess player who the KGB and Smirsh use uh, to formulate these plans based on their brilliant mathematical thinking. Uh, Kronstein devises a plan and tells Rosa Klebb, who is the director of Smirsh, who's running this whole operation for General G, that they need a girl. And so we, so this is where we are introduced to the Bond girl of the story, uh, Tatiana Romanova. And uh, she's a, a, a clerk at Smirsh, and she's given an opportunity to serve her country. Uh, the plan essentially is for her to uh, make this British Secret Service agent fall in love with her at the premise of uh, del- del- delivering the Spectre de- de- decoding device, which will give Western intelligence uh, uh, a method or a way to decipher all of the uh, QGB codes. It would be basically it would be a big coup for, for, for the Western t- intelligence to have this. So the plan is formed. So then we go to uh, M and Bond being kind of reluctant at first. You know, this girl who's infatuated with James Bond and Bond's kind of taken off his feet by this. He's been living the bureaucrat's life for the past year or so after the events of Diamonds Are Forever. Tiffany Case has left him for another man. Uh, An American... Things just didn't didn't work out there, unfortunately. Um, Again, we're seeing what's called this, you know, this Fleming sweep, this great almost like i'm really noticing this whole uh continuity going on between all the books so far and, and it is quite a sweep it is isn't it scott like how yeah, do all is, these yeah. little stories are, are are connecting it's not even more so much like a individual storyline it's like a, a a long kind of serial almost if you think about it yeah the films are so very uh, mutually exclusive uh but the the novel stories do link because their stories you know not just featuring different actors in different countries, but um, the same guy and the things that happened to him. So, yeah, you're right. There's a definite connection going on. Yeah. 
So the plan is is that Bond is to uh, meet this girl who's going to give the British the, the Spectre decoding device in um, in exchange for being able to be with Bond and to bring her back to England. Now the girl is on is working for Cleb. She believes that she's going to be go, she's going to simply just spy on the West and in England, and she's being sent there to. Yes, she'll love James Bond and she'll enjoy her life in England, but she'll also be working for the state by spying on Russia. So, you know, she's just kind of like this pretty, simple kind of girl. Um, she seems somewhat intelligent given the characterization of her, but at the same time, it's clear that um, she's being duped and easily duped by her superiors. Mm-hmm. But I could also add in her defense that she's also probably scared of being shot for not complying to, to their demands. Yes, but not not and so, also threatening her her past boyfriends and her family as well. Yeah. Yes, but she's not so scared that she Which, doesn't bolt out of that hotel room when Cleb puts the negligee on. No, well, I think I think we would all. I don't see. I would kind of be like that guy on The Simpsons, you know? Oh my God, the PT has disbanded and just jump through the freaking window. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, that's my that's, that's my equivalent of the PTA has disbanded. Would be Rosa Klebb in a, in a negligee. <laughs> yeah, that was just a real surreal moment. By the way, it's just like I, I, I'm sure Fleming had a laugh writing that. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I'll, I'm I'm going to say something about it afterwards, but it went in line with him painting the Russians as ugly, right? Um, but yeah, on you go. Oh yeah, he was he was not very um, he was not very um, what's the word. Uh, generous when it came to the russians except of course for tanya yeah but she was almost more portrayed like a western girl than than a slavic girl anyway well we'll see if she was i'm i'm not so sure but i look forward to talking about that with you later on anyway sorry man i keep interrupting you that's okay no it's, it's, it's fine so 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 she's been stationed to istanbul where she makes contact with uh, the head of section t t- turkey darko karim bay this very enemet this very uh uh, what's a very this very boisterous, colorful individual that be that Bond befriends when he arrives in Istanbul to meet Tanya. Um, Karen Bay um, is quite a character. Uh, we won't, I won't get into the details of him, but basically, him and Bond work together to try to decipher, you know, what this operation is all about. What what are the risks and everything like that? And we see sort of the spy game being played out in Istanbul. Uh, and this and essentially ends up to uh, almost like a cold war going on between the Bulgars that are hired by the Russian, uh, by the Russians in, in Istanbul, basically declaring war on Karim Bey and his organization in uh, in in, Tur- in Istanbul. Which I mean, the guy is the you know the MI6 head of section there, but he kind of operates it like uh, his 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 whole intelligence organization in Istanbul. He sort of runs kind of like. Like almost like a uh, like a syndicate or like a mafia, even you know, employing all, all of his family members to work for him, using very uh, non diplomatic methods to you know resolve con- conflicts, working with the gypsy population against the Bulgars. Um, we have this whole storyline of when they're trying to you know we have this whole kind of delay storyline where we're meeting Tanya, and this is to me a part of the storyline that I think kind of. It's almost like its own separate episode within is this war between Karen Bay's intelligence uh, there and the Bulgars hired by the Russians. Mm-hmm. And the Russians are, the Bulgars are headed up by this guy, Krylenko. And Krylenko is, is, is basically, he tried to place a limpet mine on, he placed a limpet mine on Karen Bay's uh, quarters, almost killed the man. 
but Karim survived, and he knows that he's been being being targeted. Bond feels bad because this whole operation is bringing is putting Karim in the in the crosshairs of the Bulgars and and, and the Russians. So this ends up uh, with them taking refuge Bond and and uh, Karim Bay at a gypsy camp where the Bulgars attack, and it leads up to a vendetta storyline that culminates with with Krylenko's death from Karen Bay's own hand. Uh, we, this, this is when he retur- when Bond returns from this uh, whole st- this whole little episode where Tanya is waiting for him in bed, and we get kind of that scene very much adapted into film years later uh, in the book, where Tanya is waiting for him in bed and is easily seduced, and of course the whole operation that we see is that the Russians. Uh, are filming this uh, lovemaking uh, as part of the whole plan to humiliate Western intelligence and British intelligence and Bond in, in, in particular. Yeah, that was made clear. It was made clear in the book how the film was going to be used, but in the in the film itself, it was just kind of like a you know pervy little Russian type feeling, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. It was kind of like wedged in there just a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Anyway. I, I feel that way. Anyway, so so then essentially where we go to this next part of the storyline where we have Tanya and Bond, uh, s- 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 you know, they're they're, they're uh, setting up the 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 escape from Istanbul and getting the Spectre, and this sequence pretty much goes off almost without a hitch. They get onto on onto the train, uh, onto the train in Istanbul on the Orient Express and leave the uh, the uh, city the da- the very dangerous city behind them. Karen Bay is on the train. And we have, you know, a very, uh, this is when the next part of the story really kind of gets into gear, the suspenseful um, ride on the Oriental Express. This beautiful uh, scenery that they're supposed to see, one of the most, you know, romantic kind of journeys you could get in Europe at the time. And, of course, juxtaposed against all the nefarious going on with uh, Russian agents on board the train and, you know, uh, the doubt that's going through Bond's mind, uh, the inevitable uh, death of Karen Bay with one of the Russian agents. You're they're playing quite a spy game here, and it, it all com- it all culminates when Grant, of course, uh, or Donovan Grant, finally shows his face after hundreds of pages or so, after after almost 150 pages or more, uh, he shows his face, and uh, he's he's basically disguised as an MI6 agent uh, sent to by M to um, protect him on the rest of the, of the, the journey to assist their escape and uh, the train and just to get back to England in, in, in one piece. Um, this, of course, leads to the, the big fight scene between uh, Grant and uh, and Bond and, of course, Bond's eventual showdown with Kleb once Grant is exposed and, uh, of course, Grant's a psycho, so he tells he's pretty much that talking villain trope where he tells Bond the whole operation, you know, in his smugness. Yeah. And Bond's able to figure everything. Bond is able to uh, uh, encounter Kleb in was it Lyons or Paris? In Paris, yeah. Paris, in Paris, yes. Sorry, the, at the Ritz Hotel in in, uh, in Paris, and uh, this le- this leads to that final confrontation, where we're left with a cliffhanger, and uh, Bond is almost is pretty much is he dead? Is he not dead? Did he pass out? Is he unconscious? Rosa Kleb Spike actually got into his calf in the in the book version, mm-hmm. and. I want to add that one thing I didn't like about reading this book was from Rush of Love is my favorite James Bond film. And there's, this was actually the, the film was not a bad adaptation of the novel at all. No, there were some tweaks and changes, 
But when I was reading the novel, I couldn't help not compare the no- the book to the novel, and it was really difficult, uh, like the other, unlike the other couple of books, to get close to um, the the novel version of the story. You know, like they're almost like they were merged together for me. Yeah, they're almost like it's almost like they were the lines were blurred between the film version and the book version. And I did my best to enjoy the book version, but the film version kept, you know, kept going in. And so if I made a lot of <laughs> comparisons to the film version when it comes to the narrative. I think we were talking about the plot of From Russia of Love, the book. Um, if you have if you have not seen the film, it's a lot easier to do. But if you have seen the film, it's it's, it's very difficult, I think, because it was such a good adaptation to, to separate it, you know, in, in many ways. And I really was caught by the differences that was in the storyline compared to the film. And to yeah. me, there most of these differences, however, I think are improvements of, uh, from, from the adaptation. Mm-hmm. Well, but anyways, it's a good that's, adaptation. That's, 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 just, that's, just, that's essentially it. It's a spy game, uh, very suspenseful, uh, really colorful characters. You can feel like the, the, uh, you know, the web of intrigue going on around Bond through the whole thing. He's in a trap in a vice and he doesn't know it until it's too late. And he smashes his way out as best as he possibly can, you know? And, I don't know. I just think it was a very refreshing take on the narrative that we've seen, you know, Fleming and Spouse so far. Mm-hmm. Well, well done. I, I agree with you. And I think that there are some problems, not problems with the adaptation, but just as you say, there are problems with reading this book, knowing the film well as well, because you're kind of, um, yeah, just like you say, it's almost like cheesecloth. The film seeps through into your reading of the novel because the novel is uh, a very close brother, you know, to the film. That's so true. And I kept thinking, too, and again, I don't want to compare it to the film, but when they were caught, when they were mentioning, uh, I, I could tell visually in the novel that Karen, uh, Darko Karen Bay is a lot is 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 described slightly more different, you know, than Pedro Mendaris, who 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 played him in the film version. But I kept picturing Pedro in, in the role of Karen Bay, you know, because he was just so charismatic and such a great character in the film. And yeah. I, but that also helped me in, enjoy the book version, Karen, a little bit more. Who compares into the film version has some, I think, I guess, in modern time, in our modern times, would be some negative qualities, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Somewhat. But at the same time, the essence of the character was still there, so I was still able to enjoy him. But again, enough of comparing it to the film version. I, I don't want to do that anymore, but it's very difficult, like I said, not to. It seeps into like, see, like, like a cheesecloth. That's a very good um, comparison. Uh, well, um, you know, I want to pick up on something else that you said there, which might be a nice way to break into this. I know that there's the... There's kind of the first part of the the narrative structure, as you said, which is the plan. And I'm just going to leave that behind for a quick second. We'll get right back to it. But one of the final things I'll say about the two adaptations, uh, and this is something I think that the film did a better job of than the novel. Um, It's an improvement on. And I don't know if you think this is an improvement. But in the novel, I'm kind of disappointed at just how gullible MI6 tended to be with this because M mentions that, oh, yes, it, it could be a trap. Um, but, you know, look at this girl. Like, she, I think she's pretty sincere. And all of our intel tells us that she's pretty sincere. And, yes, well, we can't say no to the chance of a, of a specter. And, and, and then Bond kind of goes along with it. Like, Bond's gullibility, or his naivety, rather, is, is really quite pronounced in this book. Whereas in 
the film, I found that that opening scene with Bond and M, where Bond said, "Well, yes, obvious," or M said, "Yes, obviously, it's a trap." Like there's there's an awareness that you would expect from a professional intelligence organization yeah. in the film that I think is kind of bypassed here a little bit in the opening uh, frames of the London scenes. I feel that, but I have a feeling though. Again, this is the difference of the relationship between. Um... Bond and M in the in the novelized version as opposed to to the film universe. Yeah. Because there's there is a much more of a patronly kind of aspect with um with Bond and M and a more like employer boss kind of aspect. Sorry, employee boss aspect with Bond in the films. Like I'm sure deep down M appreciates Bond, you know, his service to the country and stuff and and but there's still seems there seems to be a slightly bit of antagonism between Bond and M in the film versions, whereas here, Bond is pimping for England, you know? Like, he's doing what sure. Daddy tells him to do. It's a good he point. He sees M as a surrogate father figure. <laughs> and if M sure, says it's, it, it might be a trap, but <laughs> M wants him to go, Bond will do it. Because, um, let's just find the quote here, and I lost the page on that. I'm just going to go to, uh, just a second. I'll find that line in a moment, uh, if you just want to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I... I see the relationship in this book that it's kind of carried on that continuation, the fatherly figure type thing. And yeah, I mean, I buy it. Uh, I like it and it's sincere. The film is a little bit more professional. There's a bit more distance between bond and M, but I still find that, you know, between everybody in this network, they should have figured out that this was a plan. And I'm sure somebody in there had Intel on Kronstein and knew of his strengths, but no, they didn't seem to, but anyway. Well, the thing is, though, is that, is, now, to me, with Kronstein, though, is maybe they didn't have intelligence on him because Kronstein was a chess player, uh, yeah. world-renowned chess player. So it's very possible that they did not know that he was a double agent as well. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they didn't know he was a Smirsh operative. But I think Fleming should have maybe have mentioned that, like a blurb about that, perhaps, and I think that would have filled in some details. Right. But I, I agree with you, though. Like, the whole premise of this story when, when you're basing it off something for it to work uh you you, you don't want to have any kind of like uh, leaking water there right and i agree in the book version that didn't go along with it like uh to risk it but a man i guess it was you know the, the, the it was for the, the the greater gain right as opposed to, to that so i guess it showed a cavalier attitude but at the same time it does the film version does show that there's much more of a professional cautious realistic uh realist uh manner to it you know mm -hmm. and I'll, i and I'll, i found that quote that i was uh was okay. referring to regarding this this whole um surrogate some relationship between bond and m and gestured to the chair opposite him across the red leather desk bond sat down and looked across into the tranquil lying sailor's face that he loved honored and obeyed yeah and and and, and that's just not like that's that's a that's a familial comment right there i mean it's almost like if it's not his father loved honored and obeyed like what is that like marriage you know like there mm. those are words that he chose there and it really shows this whole thing about pimping out to the queen you know it makes a pimp for england it kind of really makes sense in that context that he would do anything for england right even yeah. go on this uh slightly very risky scheme you know to get back to get a spectre decoding device mm -hmm. yeah. so i think i think there's evidence of yes it's a little bit uh it's it's a, there's a little bit of a weakness you know in that that doesn't quite hold doesn't quite carry water but at the same time i think there's emotion there's emotional and um uh, what's the word emotional and patriotic and patriotic and also you know in in terms of the of, of 
the reasons why that supports, I guess, this operation uh, logically in on behalf of the, of uh, MI6. Okay. Well, well put. Uh, don't like I said. I don't fully disagree with you. I was just kind of thinking that, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of how heavily he loves or feels, uh, you know, towards M, I kind of was hoping for them to be a little bit more switched on. And, and you know what? Go ahead with everything, right? Let everything in the story remain the same, but at least acknowledge. I just wanted a sentence in there to say, "Look, Bond, you know, we fully suspect that there's." That this is a, there's there's a, a plan being hatched. Here. Yeah, you can't afford to jump at it. That's all I needed. Yeah, it seems like uh, I think I, I think there there's a sense where you don't want to hold the reader's hand, but yeah, you also don't want to be exactly too yeah. but you don't want to be too vague about it either. You know, yeah, so yeah. you got to find a good uh, in in between there, and maybe he just didn't quite do it for you in that sequence. I think maybe that's it, and I'm I'm being maybe a little unfair, but hey. Okay, before all of this, before Bond and M have their sit down and their heart to heart or their um, you know uh, modus operandi across the red desk, we've got the scenes in Russia, and oh. I absolutely love the way this book starts. I love oh, the, the, I the, love the first the half is just a, yeah, the first ninety five pages is like a gem. Like it's yeah, fantastic. really is probably some of the best writing in the entire series. I love the way Fleming draws Grant's character. Oh and yeah. The beginning is is just fantastic because you've got this girl who under any other circumstances, she I don't know why she takes her clothes off, but she does and that's fine with me, but it's kind of strange, right? She's there to give a massage and I'll just take my bra off and you know, Fleming goes through some some description of her breasts and her body and and she's titters, there. Titters titters. Yeah, yeah, she's there. She's there um massaging Grant, um, as you said, it's just part of his physio, it's part of his uh, training. Schoolboy giggling, right? Schoolboy snickering, tittering, oh, all that kind of stuff. Totally, you know? yeah, it's very titillating stuff, but yeah. um, she... You used the word tit too much there, but anyways, let's continue. Probably, yes, for, yeah, whatever. So yeah, she's, she's giving Grant a massage, and it should be a very sexualized, it should be a very passionate type of environment, but it isn't, and despite the fact that he's the perfect physical specimen, the you know, your Daniel Craig coming out of the water type thing, he repulses her because there's there's not a sense of reciprocated attraction. And the fact that Grant is basically, well, almost as... Asexual. Yeah, almost as neutered as Rosa Klebb, and we'll talk about her in a minute. Uh, <laughs> it, it makes him very, uh, very alien, and she's uncomfortable despite the fact that she should as a young sexual woman want to be attracted to this body. She can't be because there's something very, um, well, alien. I keep coming back to that word, but it, you know, that's, there's a, yeah, a perverse like monster. Mm. There's a monster in a person suit, basically that she's massaging. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, she can sense that there's something underneath him, but she's not experienced with his life or maybe, in life itself to, to, to quite articulate what that discomfort is. But I really like the way that this is, this is written, the descriptions of him, the descriptions of her and her uncomfort uh, as she's, or discomfort as she's working his body. And then of course he gets the call, right? And the call leads him to finding out that he's been beckoned by the higher ups of um, Smirsh. Of Smirsh, yeah. Um, I mean, we don't need to repeat ourselves, but for, for my sake, I really liked I really liked the the beginning of this book, and it got me interested because then you get a backstory of him, and like you oh, were the, talking about with the you know the the um, the weightlifter and the uh, <clears throat> the violent upbringing and his work at defecting in um, 
between the East and the West. And I, I just thought it was really, really interesting. And I want him in the story soon because Fleming is very, very clearly setting him up to be the antagonist, the aggressor, the the physical force that Bond's going to have to meet. Even before we know what the whole plan is, we know that this is a guy that Bond is going to have to face. But what's even it's, better... It's very much a Chekhov's gun um, trope, pretty it much. It is. Man. It's exactly what it is. And I've made that note somewhere in here of Chekhov's gun. Um, because, no, you're absolutely right. But, sorry, I'm going to shut up in a minute and give you uh, a few minutes to say your own thing. But what's even better to me than this is by the time we finish reading about Grant and his ridiculously violent past and his asexuality and his bloodlust and his work by the moon and his, you know, defection and the way he earned the trust of the Soviets and then the conditions under which he was or he became executioner for Smirsch. We then move to who the real villain is. And I think Rosa Klebb is the real villain of this story because she's the one that everybody answers to. And she, oh, absolutely. she's drawn in a completely different light. And we'll talk about her in a minute. But uh, you've probably got some thoughts on Grant as well. well pretty much what, what you said. Um, I did like the notion that when, when Grant that runs into the house to get the phone call during the massage uh, – they mention all of like the paperback books, you know, that are like all the trashy spy novels that are in his uh, in his library. That's, that's right. Yeah, it's kind of like is that like a self-deprecating comment by Fleming there? I don't know, but it's interesting though because if you, if you look how Grant talks, saying like old man and and stuff like that, you know, like like you know when posing as Captain Nash on the on the Orange Express uh, when Bond first encounters him uh, for the encounters him for the first and the last time. Uh, it seemed like to me he was like part of this. He was giddy to be part of this whole big spy game and sticking it to the British intelligence and stuff. Like it's almost like he was reading like those spy novels and just kind of like uh, you know wishing that he was the bad guy. You know, like that's what he wants. That's what he sees himself as. Yeah, yeah. And that's what he enjoys doing. And was he actually like reading those spy novels just to pretend to be so that he could pose as as a British spy? Like in in that event, I, I just found that a very interesting detail. Mm-hmm. Well, do you and want this to... kind of like this 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 veneer of being a British gentleman, you know, which began, I think, in that scene. You know, they mentioned him having a, a P.J. Wodehouse book in the garden, you know, like <laughs> any, any particular man. And then later, a British man, you know, like some old, some some like, you know, some British well-to-do, you know, uh, in the countryside. Uh, and here, you know, you, here he is, you know, later on uh, pretending to be a, a British man again on on the train. But we know that he's not a British man. We know that he is a citizen of Ireland and and uh, he worked for the IRA, you know. So it's a very interesting, explosive, vo- volcanic kind of character. And like I, like I said, and you and you agree, it's, it's a Chekhov's gun that Fleming sets up perfectly because you were waiting for the whole book for Grant to show up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think even seeing the film version paid into that. Because you know how in the film version, Grant is always in the shadows all the time, protecting yeah. Bond at the gypsy camp, you know? So, like, I'm wondering, like, is Grant somewhere? Is he watching them? Where is he? Where is he? And when yeah. he finally makes his appearance in the novel, there is no comment whatsoever uh, that um, implicitly states, this is Donovan Grant in disguise. No, that's we right. know it's Donovan Grant in disguise. Yeah, we know it is, but Bond doesn't know it is. There's only little hints about, you know, the, the body shape and the strength and the gold curly hair at the back of the neck and stuff like that. But I was going to ask you something, pick up on what you said. If Fleming had have, if he had 
dropped a few little subtle or implied hints that, you know, um, at the gypsy camp, you know, there was a man watching over the fence or, um, you know, Bond didn't recognize the man getting out of the car as he was going with Karim to kill Kurlenko or whatever. If, if there were these little things that reminded the reader, oh yeah, Grant is on the trail, would you have enjoyed the, the tension as much or did you like the fact that we didn't, we were always wondering as we were reading, where is he? What's he doing, you know? To be honest, I'm thinking more and more that there are, there are some menacing of, of, of Bond thinking someone watching him or seeing some person drive by and I keep wondering is that grand is that grand now that I'm thinking about it but I think no I think it worked great in the storyline because to be honest I did I was waiting for grand to show up but at the same time I was drawn into the whole uh you know Krylenko side plot just because it was just so engrossing you know and I just really enjoyed Karen Bay's character and that whole and the whole intrigue of of Istanbul in general right okay well yeah, so Grant is summoned, and that's when we meet the other players in hatching the plot. Most, most notably, though, I mean, Kronstein's role as um, kind of strategist dis- disappears, and, and we meet uh, and stay with, for longer time, Rosa Klebb, who's described in very different but equally powerful ugliness. Yes. Um, you know, I, I like... I think this is a must-discuss area for us. I think we've done Grant really well. Um, I'm going to come back and say something about Grant when we do our angles, uh, and we'll, we'll see how you feel about it. But with, with Kleb, I've got a few quotes here, and I'm just going to throw them out that Fleming offers and uh, see, see what you think, okay? Um, Fleming refers to and – and I think, by the way, before I say this, that Fleming's purpose, and considering the context of – his political allegiances and the world's Cold War understanding uh, and the Western ideology, I think that this text is and can be studied as a, um, a very deliberate piece of propaganda. Um, yes. I don't know if, if we should herald it that way, but I, I think that we should at least dip into it because Grant was described in monstrous terms uh, you know, like you were saying, a monster in a bodysuit, he's controlled or he has, um, you know, he has urges during moonlight, just like wolves and, and other sorts of uh, predators do. You've got Kleb, who Fleming describes in, like I was saying, ugly terms. She's described as having fur over thin nicotined lips. She was a neuter, of course, suggesting she has no sexual inclination, impulse or predisposition, which makes her an incredible uh, killer and thinker. You've got Warm, hoggish bed, slovenly, even dirty, breasts like a badly packed sandbag. Yes. Thinning orange hair scraped back to the tight, obscene bun. She's described as being squat, dumpy, and in what for me was actually a truly frightening image. I mean, I'm stepping beyond fiction now and I'm getting into the personal uh, feeling. I mean, I was frightened to read this, that rumors had it that she wouldn't or she, she insisted upon attending every execution and would often show up in a butcher's apron full of blood like that was just creepy sadist torturous type of detail well just the idea of her going to the executions yes absolutely but when you say show up like with an apron full of blood are you referring to her attending the execution yeah, uh, yeah like she, with an yeah. apron full of blood i thought it was implying more so that when she, when people like Tanya saw her, she saw the apron covered in blood because of the blood spatter. That's what I assumed. Yes, of course. But this was this is still built on rumor. It was said, quote, that Rosa Klebb would let no torturing take place without her. There was a blood spattered smock in her office and a low camp stool, 
And, when she was seen scurrying through the basement passages dressed in the smock and with the stool in her hand, the word would go around, and even the workers in Smirsch would hush their words and bend low over their papers, perhaps even cross their fingers in their pockets, until she was reported to be back in her room. I mean, that's what Fleming writes. So it's quite the image, almost like a, a, a butcher, a witch, a demon. Like, there's, there is something really quite visceral about that image. Uh, absolutely. There is definitely a demonic kind of feeling. Just in general, I wanted to point out, too, there is a, a strong, I don't know if it's a bit of, like, folklore, but almost a, a supernatural bent on some of the, uh, you know, characterizations in the story. Um, you have the, you, you know, especially, like, I guess, lycanthropy. If you look at, like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Grant being called at, called at the moon, you know, and doing it where he began with killing, like, cats and dogs, and then he escalated to, like, killing women, and yep. and he would drink to put it down because there was some point in his life where he was trying to control himself, but then he just kind of gave into it. And by going over to Russia, he's allowed to do that because in Russia, we have almost furry wolf-like <laughs> individuals like Kleb, like, yeah. like she-wolves like Kleb uh, <laughs> there. So it's almost like he's dehumanizing Russia as this kind of like this scary story from like folklore almost you know like just like these slavic monsters you know yeah and i think i think that's great because it ties into the idea of animalizing obviously the russians but the fact that these stories are so very um different to the eurocentric or the yeah the eurocentric mind and the imperialist mind you know these are the types of these are the types of uh, folklore ideas that would have been s- smashed in less powerful nations under imperial rule. But here, you know, I mean, you show up on the African shores, you don't care about their indigenous uh, knowledge systems, you just throw them in a Christian church and you take away all their gods, right? And that's that's the way uh, the empire does it, wherever they are. I mean, replace African tribe with, you know, West Indian, whatever. But here, yes. they're, they're up against someone who they still, they, they can't do that to because it's far more powerful and populous than their own nation, and they are uh, organized, they're state-organized, and they've also got a military that's nearly unmatched. And after World War One, World War Two, the British military <laughs> doesn't exist, right? Pretty much, yeah. Like, they're depending on the states uh, in that regard. Anyway, yeah, I mean, we're getting off track. But going back to the supernatural, I just yeah. want to mention... That scene after the gypsy camp fight where um, Vavra, the gypsy camp chief, um, he, he speaks to Karim and then Karim tells Bond that, that, you know, that, that Vavra believes we have the wings of death over them. Yeah. And he says that, and Karim says that, that Vavra told him uh, that he said that I, Karim, uh, be, to beware of a son of the snows. And then you must be aware of a man who is owned by the moon. Yeah, controlled by the moon, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, this is for the first instance that we're seeing very kind of like almost poetic uh, sim- sim- symbolism being you and foreshadowing being used in Fleming's works, you know, more so than I've seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's very heavy foreshadowing. And it's it is dressed in this superstitious uh, folklorish type of uh, um, context that you can get from Eastern Europe, I suppose. But um, speaking about foreshadowing, there's something else I want to talk about here, too, that I found it a little bit clunky. I don't know how you felt about it, but when she, when Tatiana is um, is being introduced to us um, as a very beautiful woman, of course, we've got that whole chapter where she's in her room before she's getting called up to see Cleb, and and we're learning about her. Um, when when she finally gets up there uh, into Cleb's apartment, because they all live in this industrial block, it's um, really quite a cold, desolate 
type of um, stylized environment. I don't know if yes. you have any impressions of that, but I'm thinking I'm thinking Orwell's 1984 because that's certainly what's you know very or very or Orwellian. Yeah, the you know the the, the typical uh, stereotypical images of like the gulag, you know that that we get from those tropes. Yeah, I mean there's there's softer foreshadowing at play too. Just to carry on with your point. Um, this is when Kleb is trying to, uh, and it's not really working, but she's, she's feeding alcohol into Tatiana to try to celebrate, you know, her soon to be promotion to uh, captain or whatever it is. Cor- uh, captain of state security, I think is what they're looking to do. The cat playing with the mouse, basically. Very much. Uh, Rosa Kleb immediately filled it again, slopping some over the tabletop. And now to the health of your new department, comrade, she raised the glass. She raised her glass. The sugary smile tightened as she watched the girl's reactions to smirch. Numbly, Tatiana got to her feet. She picked up the full glass to smirch. The words scarcely came out. She choked on the champagne and had to take two gulps. She sat heavily down. Um, th- this idea that she's not a fan of smirch, I think it, it kind of situates her moral compass and tells us that later on her honesty to Bond is going to be a little more easy to come by, if you see what I mean. Yeah, there's definitely – I find that they picked the right girl. It's, they, they really picked the right girl for the operation because I think this is someone who was, who was kind of almost outside of their sphere. They were the kind of the example of the pure Russians uh, – the, the pure Russian that, you know, that, we, that the West was supposed to save from, from the communists, right? That even the people of Russia were in danger from, from predators like Kleb, you know? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, okay. So maybe she – her um... – her repulsion towards or her fear of uh, of smirch is something that you're saying they're using to manipulate her. And oh, absolutely, they're they're using that to manipulate her. They want her to be prideful in her country, but you know, they want her to show pride in her country and to be patriotic. But at the same time, they don't trust her patriotism because, well, if you don't get along, we'll just uh, yeah. kill your your boyfriends. You know, so yeah. your ex, you know, like the private. It's like that line from Zhivago. The private life is dead in Russia, you know, <laughs> and it's it's so true because you, they want you know she asked him about her relationship. She said I don't feel that appropriate, and Kleb says you know care. she takes <laughs> she takes the kids' gloves off and she's just basically saying, well, that's nice, but yeah, tough if shit. If you don't comply, well, those those nice boyfriends. I promise we we don't want to hurt them, but we don't want to do something that we're forced to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's that very kind of gray. Not too gray. It's actually it's very close to black, but um, it's just, it's how they word it to make it sound gray. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. That that vague, that kind of that um, ambiguous evil that they're threatening with, which is in fact evil in itself to threaten with. You know, because it's showing the manipulations going on here. And I, I want to mention too is, and they mention this, in, and Fleming mentions this, and the characters mention this is her name is Romanova. That's her last name. Mm-hmm. And the Romanovs, that's the family of, of, of the Tsars, right? Yes, Blue Bloods. And so this is, again, uh, I think, a propaganda uh, tool by Fleming because the one good girl in Russia who wants to, you know, who is going to, wants to escape to the, to the West uh, in her own way because she becomes infatuated with Bond, she's an example of the Russians that the West is trying to save from the evil communists, that the evil Slavic communist Bolsheviks are these monstrous wolves, like she-wolves, like Kleb, uh, scary individuals, like you know, with no with no hair and and whatnot, like like General G and stuff, stuff like that, right? Very severe, monstrous right. figures. 
uh, the way that G is described is almost like he's like he's a freaking uh, Nosferatu or something like that, you know? <laughs> and uh, just, she's just an example to me, uh, Tanya, of the imperiled Russian peasant at the mercy of these communists. And th that's part of the whole mission statement is that the Cold War is about protecting us. It's also about freeing the, the good people of Russia as well, you know? Okay, I mean that that's a very insightful way of looking at her, and I must admit I didn't look at her character quite in that way. Maybe because I don't own um, I don't own the same understanding of the context as you do. I mean, my understanding of Russian history, uh, particularly Cold War, is growing and it's getting stronger, but it isn't. I don't think where yours is certainly. But can I ask you this? Uh, obviously, you're suggesting that there was uh, not suggesting you're claiming that there was a precedent for for sending spies to foreign countries uh, in terms of you know for for means of escape or um, uh, retirement. I mean, because she sells Tatiana the idea that she'll be sent to Canada. And even Vaughn mentions that later right. on when he's on the train. Yeah, I mean, so there was definitely someone on the inside there that Cleb knew that that was uh -huh. an operation that that, that 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 was a method that the British did use. Because yeah. they don't want to keep them in Canada. Oh, by the way, just a fun ref. As Canadians, did you like the Igor Gazenko reference in the uh, when when General G and them were all planning? I didn't get it. Igor Gazenko was the he was the guy that pretty and right after the Cold War, right after World War II began, I think it was in the late forties. Late forties, there was a huge Russian spy ring in Ottawa. Oh, okay, and Igor Gazenko. Was the guy that blew the whistle on them? He defected over to the over to the west. Oh, I did get that. In fact, I made a note to that, but I didn't get the. Um, where is it? I thought that was Serbian. I thought he was a Serbian guy. They were referencing. No, no, Igor Gazenko. They mentioned this Koklova affair, uh, or Kokolov affair, quite a lot. Yeah. Whenever yes. was, I, I was able to, I was able to research that. I wasn't sure if it was fictional or if it was an actual thing. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't pick up on it, but. Um... I had the markdown, but I thought it was a Serbian reference. Oh, cool. No, I didn't know that. That's good. But there, and there's definitely some really good, I think, uh, historical context in the storyline, despite, you know, the propaganda, I guess, aspect that it was used for. Yeah. Um, was that um, Smirsh, like General G and stuff, were kind of, these guys, you know, these were the, they mentioned Berea and they mentioned Stalin and all. Stalin has just died and stuff. And. There's now people. People are glad that Stalin. I think a lot of Russians, even the ones in the KGB, are glad that Stalin is dead because that guy was just a monster who like purged everybody. Yeah, yeah. And and we have they mentioned Khrushchev. Khrushchev, who's in charge. Yeah, we do. Now he's kind of giving off this whole veneer of we're you know Russia does its thing, the West does its thing, but the Cold War is still going, but. We're not. We're we're going to have little jabs and pokes every now and then, right? Mm -hmm. So the type of operation that's being devised here, very subtle and kind of going at the British pride, no big explosions or invasions or anything like that, is very very typical of the Cold War uh, in this time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do like it, and I'll, I'll say more about that when we get to the narrative bit. But if if we we can just usher ourselves on a little bit here too, mm -hmm. um, after Bond, or sorry, in in. The time when Bond is accepting this um, uh, mission, if you will, there's a couple of things that take place, and I think we got to talk about them. I think it's a must discuss as well. That Tiffany Case leaves him. Um, Gallibrand, <laughs> Gallibrand was engaged. Solitaire didn't hang about. Um, Bond never really intended for her to, I don't think. And Vesper dies. I mean, the cinematic idea that we've had of this 
kind of heartbreaker James Bond. It's just not flying in these books. Bond is always, he, I mean, he can't seem to keep one of these girls. Uh, he can capture them, but he can't keep them. He can't seem to convince one. And there's a sense, at least in this text, that he wants at some point to settle down and get married, but they abandon him. And I find that really curious that, I don't know if there's something autobiographical in there, uh, but Fleming writes his character, his hero, as a man who can attract women and can enjoy women and obviously knows women. Uh, not sure how much he respects them, but he he seems to in this book a little bit more maybe than we've seen in the past. But they leave him. I find that a really interesting juxtaposition when you consider the films and the Lothario aspect of Bond. Yeah, I find the less the less of a Lothario in the in the, in the books personally. Um, I would go. I'm, we're mentioning M, you know, and the whole father son relationship that they have together and you know what i think i think there's when it comes to fleming how his life was his women in his life were you know were determined either their existence the, the time period of the, i guess the time frame of their uh their almost like their expiry date mm. uh for them in his lifetime was determined by his mother uh, who was a very controlling aspect of, of of his life you know making sure he'd get this job and that job and this position and that position and he you know at one point fleming was engaged to a swiss girl but, it, but his mother sabotaged that as well. So in many ways, there's definitely a maternal kind of tension going on uh, with Fleming and his character. Because I find a lot of the women that Bond are with, he becomes so attached to them so quickly. Like, does, ta yeah. like Tanya, like he's almost in love with her and he finds her adorable. He's infatuated by her. You know, like he doesn't, it's not just a guy who's being with her who just wants to bang it. Like he kind of like almost obsesses over them and, and he just falls instantly in love with them. Yeah. And, uh, th th this is a guy who's looking for almost like a maternal figure for him, you know, uh -huh. well, to yeah. match up with, 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 with his, with his surrogate father M. Yeah. That's what I really find. I think you're right. I think there is a search for a maternal figure in here somewhere. Um, and that also kind of, I guess, plays into his insecurities in places. But what, I mean, you're, I, I mean, I think a real happy ending for Bond is that in his career, he should just marry uh, Lilia. That's what he should do. And I think he'd be happy. Or his housekeeper. <laughs> or his house. Yeah, his Scottish housekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I did, right. like that, I did like that notion that they were starting the paranoia aspect of like the spy game a little early in that sense because Bond is so freaking bored, you know, from because he's stuck in the bureaucrats world. Yeah. And this is something that you don't see in the films is Bond as the bored bureaucrats. Just doing yeah. the most boring jobs, you know, having an in-tray and an out-tray. You know, like kind of doing like the, the, you know, the the typical civil servant uh, drab work, you know, and yep. this whole thing about how could this gentleman be be a communist and the very suggestion that, you know, this is just some old Scottish lady, you know, who's just being like, I don't like that gentleman. He was very forward and <laughs> maybe, maybe he, he's a union, maybe he's a communist, you know, just very simple <laughs> fears. But Bond's thinking in his mind, maybe he is a communist spy. This is how bored he is, right? Yeah, he's So this so also bored. goes into me, for, for yeah. me anyways. Why, he, even though he's just, he was so, he didn't care about how dangerous that assignment was because he just needed to get out of his, the doldrum that he was in right now. When you're looking at the television salesman as, as like a communist spy, he, he, he needs to get some action in terms of like espionage action, you know? Yeah. But you know what? Fleming, <laughs> Fleming writes it so that we are wondering, especially after exactly. all this pretext on, on the plan, if, if he's not himself, if he isn't a, a spy, you know? Now, if they had, they had described a television guy with like blonde hair and cruel blue eyes or something yeah. like that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would have been a great little, little reference. 
It would have. But of course, that gets me back to what I asked you earlier as to whether or not those, you know, the strength of the the absence of Donovan Grant is, um, <laughs> you know, is uh, is good, you know, or do we want to see more evidence of Bond being spied on, you know? Anyway, let, let's move forward, man. He gets this um, he gets this flight to Turkey and he meets uh, Karim. And um, I'm going to say, I, I don't want to talk too much about Karim at this venture because in a few minutes when we do our angles, I'll say more about how I feel about him. But I will just generally say that um, he's an incredible character with an incredible backstory. And oh, yes. What I used to find, um, I remember one of the things I remember about this book is the quote, that every woman longs to be slung over a man's shoulder, dragged into a cave and raped. Um, I remember reading that. Or the imagery of him tying a girl, chaining a girl and naked underneath the table. I know. This is what, and, this is what I'm going to say. And then her mother coming in and his mother coming in and getting really pissed off at them about it. Well, <laughs> I, I remembered the rape quote, right? And, and I remember it from when I was a teenager. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I mean, what kind of a guy is this? What kind of a fucking line is that to put in a book? And then how it kind of I ruined forget? almost the film version of the character too, eh? Oh, yeah. But how did I forget that he chained a woman under his table? Like, what? <laughs> And then he made the woman love him, and then she he eventually fell in love with this woman. And and then, the, like you say, the mom comes in and it's like, oh, Darko, you've got a woman under the table again. Like, <laughs> it's nuts. Like, it's, ter- it's terrible to laugh at, but I, I, it's, it's, I guess it's just context, I guess, eh? It is so wild that there's no other reaction but laughter. And <laughs> I read some of these parts to Sarah, and she's just rolling her eyes, right? Because she's... I read all parts of all these books to Sarah and she's like, oh, Jesus. Like, you know, she understands, uh, you know, the time that they're built, that these books are built in. But it don't matter, man. There's like, God, his young – but his, his his father owned a harem as well, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, his father was quite the, uh, mac, the, quite the mac daddy. He was quite the Just mac like daddy. Just like very handsome fisherman, you know, like very different from him. Anyways, fisherman, that's for sure. <laughs> He always got the big fish. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> get, get that in there. Yeah. Add, I, I, I think he needed some Isaac Hayes shaft there or something like that, you know? Well, Nelly's pimp juice will have to do. Um, yeah, pimp juice will have to do. He's got, yeah, he's got a harem of women. Every, You know, Darko grows up with like all kinds of aunts and it's, it's just wild. And I really like reading the character. I find that there's... Um, I mean, it's it's kind of over the top sometimes the way Fleming is trying to make Karim the um, the Felix Leiter of this story, but he's doing it by making Karim a more powerful figure. Yeah, anyway. no, I agree, and he makes him more dominant. I did find that like, yeah, Bond really ends up liking this guy a bit too much, but I guess he was <laughs> yeah, just... he does, yeah, and also very quickly. Now, I think if he had been much more, if, if Karim had kind of had this backstory. But he had kind of, I don't know, tamed some of his more wild nature or, or, or attributes, you know, in, in terms of how he put himself together and conducted his business. Mm-hmm. I think it would have maybe been more believable. Yes, I agree. So, but I also think that because M thinks so highly of him and said that, he's a top man. Yes. I think that M Bond, said so, so therefore, yeah. yeah and that comes that's back, true. That goes back into what you were saying about the, the father figure, you know? Yeah, I um, agree. Okay, so, I mean... The, the Istanbul scenes are, are really good. I like a lot of the Istanbul scenes. Um, I was going to talk about this in my angle, but I think I'll talk about it now because it's kind of in the where we are with our conversation. Uh, <clears throat> narratively, the the episode of you know the gypsy camp and all that stuff, I felt that was a bit of interesting travelogue, but 
I didn't feel as though it pushed the narrative forward at all. And for me, for me, although it was interesting, it straddled the line of purpose, you know, uh, and the only reason I go along with it is because in the context of the story, we are waiting like Bond for Tatiana to get in touch with him, right? And I go along with Karim's assassination plot because he's investigating the assassination. And and like you said, this guy, Kurlenko and... And it's justified, but it's only justified remembering that Bond is waiting for contact from this girl. I'm not really enjoying this part much. I think that I would have enjoyed more glances into the Soviet side of things, you know. Um, But I guess Fleming felt like after 120 pages without Bond, we needed to keep him somewhere. I like the backstory, but I, I would have liked to see more of Istanbul than the nighttime gypsy rural stuff, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. I don't like the fact that it doesn't push the narrative forward. And I feel like, as you said earlier, it's just this, it's like it's its own short story within this novel. It's almost like it's the, it should have been like, yeah, exactly. Like its own separate storyline where it'd be part of the Fleming sweep, you know, like hypothetically, the Istanbul storyline could have been in a previous novel. And then we meet Karen Bay later again in Istanbul and from Russia of Love. And they're already, you know, yeah. they, have, they already work together. So that would that that would that would contribute with 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 the narrative more, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it's another example I, I think of just like these chance coincidences that occur in his stories. If you look at Moonraker, you know the whole plot is based on Bond simply going to a bridge game, you know, and then all mm-hmm. you know see that this guy is, is cheating, and this leads into oh wait, this guy is actually a former is a is a is a Nazi proposing as a British gentleman who is going to launch a. A shot, um, a rocket on London, you know, like yeah. But, it, but in the case of Moonraker, chance occurrences. In the case of Moonraker, though, the chance occurrence was plot directed. It, exactly, it, it was. Is, it was. It isn't. It, it seemed kind of. The, it made the plot kind of like serendipitous in that fashion. Yeah. But it still yeah. was plot directive. Like right. the whole episode with Grilenku could have been taken out of the storyline, and it wouldn't affected anything in the storyline, in my opinion. Correct. Well, I mean, it's it's an opinion. I agree with it, but it's also a fact, because narratively, you can dissect but, the structure that way. In the defense of that sequence, though, I think in many ways, it kept up this, I think, because I think if you were very invested in the story from the first half, and then you're waiting for Grant to show up in the second half at some point, it's that whole instance where, Bob, where Fleming has these moments where he creates suspense by delaying, 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 you know? Yeah. And I I think in a, in especially in the film version, I think it works stronger. Where where and I think it's just the same as in the book version. So it's just a matter of are you feeling the suspense that's being it's it's basically it's I guess it's because it's the artifice of it. Perhaps that it that it stands out more as kind of being a weakness because it's a deliberate delaying tactic to get to the part that that want, that we yeah. want, you know? Like it yeah. creates tension. No, you and make a good I, point. Yeah. Uh, you do. Um, but regardless of how you cut it up, I mean, it is what it is. It's 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 an example of his connections in the country and how he, like you were saying, uh, basically operates a syndicate. And you, you, you see the same thing criminally in today's TV. Um, you see it in pop culture. Uh, think about The Sopranos. You know, Tony had – Tony Soprano was using the uh, – the, uh, Arabian families, right, who ran the hotels to do things for him and to collect intel and payments. So, I mean, or yeah. even like the, or even like the the uh, Godfather, you know? Yes, completely. Uh, either way, you cut it up. Karim is a larger than life character, uh, a very elaborate backstory. It's worth getting into for people listening. You know, it, it is a really good character. I like him. He pairs well with Bond, but the homoeroticism and that jump, 
quickly to holding the guy's hand for Bond is a little immature. But, you know, this is something that I don't know I'm right to criticize fully because I never served in conflict with people. I didn't I don't understand. I mean, I do partially, but I don't, you know, have personal different experience. Different strokes, different folks, I guess, eh? Yeah, but I don't have a personal experience like Fleming did of a military brotherhood in the face of evil. I know that in each of the novels there exists a relationship that Bond relies upon and has kind of the, well, homoerotic um, overtones. And he's got I don't a, know about homoerotic, but oh, maybe I, that we're going back to the father M relationship. Maybe, like, Bond we know is an orphan. So maybe he's just kind of looking for the surrogate father and the surrogate mother anywhere that he wants. Well, we don't know Bond's an orphan at this stage in the novels. That's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. And, you know... I, That's true. My, my apologies. Spoiler well, alert. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. We don't know that. And, I mean, I think that Fleming... It, well, I mean, come on, Josh. You know better than I do, probably. There's been a lot written about the the kind of military brotherhood and how it stretches yes. beyond blood. And I, I'm using the term homoerotic. Maybe I shouldn't because that, there's more sexualized, uh, you know, inferences with that. But this idea of there needing to be a bond, uh, a bond that goes beyond men helping each other, a bond of great deep respect and passion friendship. I mean, that kind of shit is in every one of these books. I yes. use the word shit colloquially, by the way. I don't mean in it in a degrading way. But It's true. Perhaps this is just... I guess Fleming espousing his own personal views of yeah. finding someone in the same, you know, a uh, fight as you, and 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 being able to very much make a very quick connection just in a very few moments. Yeah, it's just I guess it just depends on the reader and how you and 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 how you know they put their own life ex- they project their own life experiences yeah. into the story, right? It does when they're getting. Well, in terms of their emotional investment. Well, let, let's move forward. I, I'm really eager to, eager to get to the angle so that that part of our conversation isn't rushed. And I know we're going to flush more of the story out through our angles, but why don't you say a few words about when Bond gets um, Tatiana and, I mean, or share some opinion if you want to. You've already talked about the bedroom scene, but maybe when they get themselves onto the train. You, I mean, you want to pick up from there and say a few things. In terms of the relationship, like, I mean, after the bedroom scene and then she's on the train with him and everything and, it doesn't really one disappointing aspect of the storyline, and I want to mention this in my angle, is that there wasn't a lot of instances where you get into Tatiana's mind at all. No, and when and, you do, when you do get into her mind, it tends to be pretty superficial. Like she falls for Bond's magic penis as well. Exactly, yeah, Bond's magic penis. Exactly. So th- there's not really any kind of conflict on her part. She just almost just switches. She changes gears very quickly. You know, like the change of the tracks on the train and. Bond is, you know, you know, he's infatuated with her and he wants to protect her and he's all protective about her um, because she's she's kind of like the feminine representation of the mission itself, you know, if, if you think about it. Uh, uh, well, say, say something about that, would you? The feminization of the mission itself. I mean, you're, you're speaking... Well, this, goes back, this, this, this goes back, to, you know, into my feeling about how her last name is Romanova and she okay. is the kind of like supposedly like kind of like uh, Anastasia type c- character, okay. you know, where... Right. I got she's you. The, she's the last connection to old the old the old Russia that was once a uh, an, an ally to the West, you know, and uh, she's she's the Russia that's gone, the Russia that has to be saved, you know, mm-hmm. and and Bond, you know, and that's the propaganda tool that's put into Bond's feelings for her, you know. This is him again, another woman he becomes infatuated with that he wants to save, you know, from her situation, and this is kind of like the whole thing, right? But 
the thing is with her, there's not really too much to save. She's going from one, she's going from a bad place to a possibly good place. And she's just a, a, a puppet, you know, she's not trying to fight for her survival. She's just going along with it because she has to. And I, I just found there wasn't a lot of impetus with her character in the storyline. She was almost like a, to Hitchcock term, a MacGuffin, mm-hmm. more so than the MacGuffin of the, of the Spectre itself. It's almost like the Spectre and the and her are the almost the, the combined MacGuffin, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the Spectre's just not important in this. It's, it's really not, no. I mean, the very fact that, you know, it's a, a supposedly a, has an explosive rig to it that's going to cause more humiliation uh, once it gets to the uh, to the British, but... Yeah, but... Oh, yeah, I mean, should we talk about Red Grant on the Orient Express? I mean, do you want to get there now? Do you just, you just want to kind of move our little discussion forward to... Well, get Red there? Grant on the, on the... Yeah, when he makes his appearance as Captain Nash and... Uh, yeah. Uh, it's pretty much tap for you know like I guess we're going back to the film comparison. Um, it's pretty much it, 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 you know it unfolds the exact same way. He's disguised as Captain Nash, um, this man that M sent uh, in in Trieste to help them out uh, when the when the train stops in Trieste. This is after Karim's death, of course. Yeah. And Bond trust trusts Bond is is true doing his best to trust this guy right away. But there's just something not right about him, and Bond can pick that up. Oh, he does. So maybe yeah. in terms, yeah, exactly. So I think in terms too is that I think this is a, this might go into the defense of you know of how quickly Bond attaches himself to Karen Bay and to other characters. Is that I think Bond's a very good judge of people, and he has that kind of Sherlock Holmes thing where he can size people up and see who they are, you know, based on observational details. You know, like he deduces very quickly um, in terms of who these people are and what they re- they represent and, and, and what, you know, and if he sees something off about someone, he picks it up and his, and his meeting with Nash is automatically kind of off kilter at, at the beginning. And it just gets more and more and more like little things kind of annoy him, annoy him and annoy him. I did find though that, and I think this might be where you're going with this. I think Bond should have called him out sooner for being, for being who he was. I think Bond should have realized it a bit sooner and I think this was just a, a bit of a narrative ploy to kind of delay that that fight scene to draw out the suspense that almost got to the point where I really think Bond would have probably have figured this guy out by this point. Yeah, um, Bond has a bit of plot stupidity, I guess you could call it. Yeah, that's not actually the bit that I um, uh, that that's not the bit of the scene that I don't like. There's something else that I can talk about, but yeah. I do have a problem with uh, Nash slash Grant here on the train. Um, I can get into it now, or I can get into it during our angle, but I think we're kind of leading towards our angle anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, here's my problem, right? And I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but Ian Fleming goes through, and goes to, sorry, great, great length in the beginning stages of this novel to describe and paint Donovan Grant as a, as a monster in a man's costume, as you've said earlier, or skin. And he's got, you know, these impulses that are animalistic, these drives that are more instinctive than most humans to kill. And he's, he's not sexual. He doesn't, you know, death is what's the orgasm for him. He, he's got mania. He's almost not interested in people. He takes orders and follows instructions, but that's it. And then we get Nash. And once Bond is told that there's a you know once he has this kind of this revelation 
um, by the care oh, the character's revelation, I guess is what I'm trying to say, doesn't fit with how he's painted earlier. For me personally, I don't buy that such a man as Grant, as described and set up in the beginning stages, is going to sit down uh, on company time and have a Bond villain chat before killing him, revealing everything, you know, taking pleasure in the story. This is like, for me, it reads too much like foreplay, too much like uh, cock teasing almost from a character who has already been brilliantly established is not caring about any of that. Pathologically, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. Why is he now sitting down and having this gleeful, smug conversation about how smart he is and how clever Rosa Klebb is? I don't buy that this is the same guy that I'm given in the first part of the story. And for me, in terms of character development, that's a big problem. Well, I don't know. You see, they kind of set Grant up at the beginning as to kind of be kind of like the anti-Bond, in my opinion, right? Um the difference is that Bond wants to do what he does and he kills for queen and country and Grant kills because he likes to, you know, he's almost like the, the animus of Bond, I guess, when Bond goes into like the killing mode in, in, in that kind of sense. And I think they were setting these two up to meet at some point. Yes. It's also I believe good to, that. Point, to point out too, is that Grant hates the English. This is a guy who joined yep. the IRA, yep. right? Yep. So he has a hatred of the English. They treated him like shit. And I think because he, I think they set these two up as being kind of like the antagonists within the narrative, like against each other, that they would eventually meet that suspense creating where when is Donovan Grant going to encounter Bond? They're building this character up. Something's going to happen. So I think it would be remiss of Fleming not to have kind of like a tete-a-tete between these two people. And in this, I can see why he would do that. I, I understand your point of view, too, that he was being the typical talking Bond villain trope, for sure. But at the same time, I think because of the done of Grant's background, that him basically saying, "Oh, they said you were the best." There's even a line where, like, where Grant tells um, Bond that, you know, you're not very impressed. I'm not very impressed by you at all. You know, and mm. it's almost like he was to that particular, like that hatred of the English. He was just so glad to stick it to them. So it wasn't just more of just like him want to kill people. It was also his own, um, I think, his own personal beliefs, kind of. It, it showed to me that he was more than just a, not just a monster because he really wasn't because um, he did kill at nighttime and he tried to function during during the day. Um, he, 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 he became to drink a lot to to shut out all the evil that he was feeling because even Bond mentions that he seems like a manic depressive, you know, yeah. not, not really a psychopath, but a manic depressive. And it just seems to me that this aspect of him sticking it to Bond was a, was is more connected to his hatred of the English okay. and not just him well, being a stone okay. cold cold killer. That's how I saw it personally. That's I how I that's how I personally in my mind I justify why 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 Fleming had that um um what was it called that tete tete uh, talking villain trope. Okay, I do see it um, as well, but I think what stands out in the opening stages for me isn't the IRA. It isn't the English stuff. Yes, I mean, understandably, Red Grant's character is painted in those ways. But what stands out for me, man, are all of those those <clears throat> animalistic descriptions. And uh, I, I just think Fleming goes so far as to making this guy not human through the masseuse, or th sorry, through the masseuse scene at the beginning, through the moon references, through the bloodlust, through the killings. And then, oh, yeah, spattered among there is a little political thing about the English and a little something about the IRA. 
and a little something about his defection. But there's no charm in Grant as developed in the beginning. And so when he shows up here, the, the very fact that the guy can have a conversation and can think things out and can prove... But he wasn't really having a conversation in full aspects. Well, he kept saying old man a lot. It's almost like he was on like, I have my programming to be a British spy. I have okay. to remember these lines so that I sound somewhat uh, like a British person. I got to sound like a person. I'm wearing my person suit. So I am now trying to sound like a person. Right. And I well, think that's what he was trying to do, because in those kind of missions, he would have to do that at some at some case. OK. And it was a big yeah. mission. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Maybe you're right. OK. Maybe you're right. All, all I feel is like if the Red Grant from the beginning of the story showed up on the train, Bond wouldn't have survived. I just don't see Bond could have lived if the man from chapter one showed up because the man from chapter one was a monster. He, he didn't oh, care. He was. He started out as a monster as well. Remember that. But then he ran over to the to the Russians and he said, make me into a killer. Right. And if you recall, yeah. they put him through the academy, uh, through the training. They gave him training on Western intelligence. And oh, he, was very good at, he was very good at uh, doing spy surveillance and radios and walkie talkie and, all, you know, like doing surveillance, all those kind of things. The the all the attributes of espionage. Uh-huh. He wasn't great, you know, at the historical, the, the political stuff. He wasn't great at the but social. But he was—he was really good. Yeah, he was very, he was very antisocial. Yeah, but, but he was very good at setting like, up the. He's very social here. He's very convincing to someone who's just looking at him on a train. He's convincing in his conversations. He—he he earns the trust of our naive hero by getting his gun. You know, I mean, I. I just the only reason he—the only tree reason he owns the trust of Bond, in my opinion, is because because Bond thought this guy was that M sent him. And Bond is very naive about being loyal to yes, the people right. that he works yeah. for. Okay, yeah. Right? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there because Bond does think that it's M's – yeah, because he just had a, a wire from M where they were talking about it. Yeah, Because Bond is so concerned right. that this guy is just like – he has like PTSD or something that he's just like a, a loose cannon that was yeah. just kind of left – Bond's concerned about him. You know, this is a fellow soldier in the great fight. And there's something off with this man, and something's wrong with him. You know, I he feels bad for him. You know, like he's such. He's, yeah. Bond could tell this guy is so antisocial, and we know that Grant, for some reason, I guess he feels that uh, he's playing this role and he's playing this person. I will agree for you that maybe, just maybe, that I, I I'm trying to think of where he could have put in the novel where Grant would have been. You know, they should have mentioned maybe that Grant uh, was well. He was given espionage training so you would have to assume as a russian agent that he would have to have these covert skills in some capacity maybe and maybe that's so well, maybe that's it seems like to me the russians part. tamed they tamed him and they used his yeah it's 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 a good point i think on both our ends and i think yeah. we have a good argument there i think i, I think you're, you're you're bringing me over to your side to be perfectly honest but maybe it's a a, a short-sightedness on fleming's part to presume that his audience only needs to see he had intelligence training because again, it's it's. Do you hold the hand, or do you, or 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 do you subtly hint, or do you go in between? You know, like that's yes. that's 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 all kind of this of the, though. I mean, all of this for me didn't really didn't really affect my marks much, and we'll see that as we get into the angle. Look, the Orient Express, uh, the fight ensues. Bond survives because he manages to put his cigarette case and a book in place of his heart, just hoping that Grant's. Um, uh, predetermined uh, target of his heart is going to be hit accurately, and he manages to play dead long enough to uh, get an advantage in size. And then that Q branch equipment comes into play, which we're going to get to in our equipment chat. And then after slipping off the train in southern France, 
Bond and Tatiana get a train up to Paris where they meet up with Mathis again. And it was great to see Mathis because I really... Yeah, it was. He's a good character. Tatiana safely at the embassy and Bond goes and gets poisoned by uh, Rosa Klebb who is in disguise as a granny with sewing needles, each of them blue-tipped with poison. Yeah. And I love this. It's, 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 it's like an old countess, right? Like an old dowager. Yeah, very much. And I, I love that yeah. parte that they that they share. Um, and that's basically where the story ends, as you've already said neatly. It ends in a cliffhanger. And I'm wondering if this is where... I mean, Fleming had written five Bond movie, uh, Bond books. Maybe, maybe he wanted to kill the character off. I'm sure he wanted to do other things. We knew he was interested in screenplays, and you know, he could have maybe wanted this to be the end of his character. But of course, he isn't. He comes back in Doctor No, um, in our sixth book. But okay, that's it. That's the book. I want to give our angles a real good flesh out here. So if, sure. you, if you will indulge me, A-N-G-L-E, adversaries and allies, narrative, plot, pacing, style, uh, the G for girls, L for locales, interior, exterior, you know, the whole glamour of world travel, and then the E, the equipment, the tools that Bond uses. Let's jump in. Josh, adversaries, okay. allies, go for it. Hit me with your A. Okay, so for my ang for the adversaries and allies, I was originally going for 4.5 on this score, but I'm actually going to a solid 5 on this one. I think this, of all the Bond novels so far, this has the most colorful set of villains and characters uh, you could possibly imagine. Um, you have, for example, the, the, the very fleshed out character of, of, of Grant. Um, just... Uh, a wonderful, a kind of just a fantastic presentation of, <clears throat> of a of a madman um, put into service by the Russians. Um, you have General G. This, as I mentioned, this Nosferatu like head of Smirsh, Kleb herself. We talked about her. Enough, enough said regarding her. Um, Kronstein. I found him. A, he was only there slightly, but I found him really great from the very beginning. I loved that whole sequence where. He gets. We saw it from Russia of Love, where he gets the note saying, "You are you are to attend a meeting, right?" At the middle of his chess match. Yeah. In the in the film version, we know that he just. It seems like he was toying all along, and it was great script writing because it showed what a master uh, script writer, uh, sorry, um, uh, what a mastermind that um, Kronstein was, because he ended the match right then and there, right? It's almost uh -huh. like he was just toying the guy, right? Yeah, he plays on toying with little the little guy, little delaying time. We get to the point here, we meet Kronstein, he doesn't, when he gets the letter, he he is so arrogant and confident in, in his own brilliance within the KGB and Smirsh that, you know what, I'm going to finish this game because I am who I say I am, right? Yep, there's a smugness there that he's like, well, yeah, he is nervous about not showing up immediately, but at the same time, he knows that he's called because he's needed, and he's going to try to play that advantage until he finishes his game. Absolutely. He plays the game really well with General G because he's able to um, maneuver around the fact that he he was dereliction of duty going on there, right? Right, okay, so... So, so yeah, so then, of course, we have Karen Bay, who we discussed a, just very colorful character, very interesting. Um, you have his 
sons. I did like that one aspect of the one son that they encounter in um, Belgrade, uh, where they where they find out that Karim he finds out his father is dead, and it's just a really sad you know moment with that character that really kind of humanized Karim and that character to me as well. Yeah. That like, and then they had that kind of like that very subtle response we read about later about about Karim's sons basically taking out the Russian apparatus in in Istanbul. Yes. Yep, I like that so, moment as well. I like the fact. I mean, I think little, Karen's a great little nuances like that, you know. And, they, and I find that I just find that like this whole web of intrigue. There's always little pieces, and each, each character has their own part to play in it. And I think Fleming did a really good job making all the characters really interesting. Yeah, to me, there are it's some the, plots that you would like to follow in this play, in this, uh, in this narrative that maybe don't exist quite as richly in the earlier Bonds. I'm thinking the first two. Um, like I would like to, I would like to have seen the Soviet embassy, not the embassy, but the uh, that sort of meeting room explode. You know, I would, I, I'm wondering how many rats were killed in the explosion in the tunnel. Yeah, like there are things that are set up in this novel that genuinely hold your interest. I, yeah, and they come through the character already. And what about uh, the two gypsy girls? You know, what what was the result of that? Which which yeah. one did the son, which one did the son take? I want to know. Yeah. Okay. So so you're going five. Out of five for character or for uh, adversaries and allies. Yeah. Okay. I, the one one character that I was disappointed in a little bit was Galenku. I found him a much more vivid character in the film, and I found that he was kind of dumbed down in the book version. He was kind of like just a a plot device for Karen Bay. Yeah, he he was a plot device, but he was also a plot device for the narrative. Like I was saying, he didn't his story doesn't add to anything. I don't feel like I needed him fleshed out. In fact, I wanted no. I wanted him flushed down. I wanted him away completely. Um, that's just the way I read it, but Josh, you know what? I mean, you heard what I said about Grant and how I didn't like the way that I, I don't feel the payoff came after waiting all book for him for him to be like a big revealing Bond villain. But the truth is, regardless of this, um, weakness in character, because it could also be a weakness in narrative, really. I think the ensemble cast of From Russia With Love is still strong enough it's fully developed, very well written. I think Karen is the best creation that Fleming has given us so far, maybe apart from from Felix Leiter. I think Bond has more fun with Felix Leiter in different places, but I think Karen is the richest developed character so far among yes. the allies. Kleb is herself um, almost worth a five on her own. Kronstein is cool. I like the gypsy guy of Vavra. I found him Vavra. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Simply, I just said this is the best ensemble cast. And so although I didn't like the lack of consistency as I read it, although you have come some way to convincing me otherwise, of Grant's character, I still went for a 5 out of 5 on this. So I'm right with you. I think the adversaries and allies are the best we've seen in any Bond book so far. And I'm going 5 marks as well. So bravo. Yeah, absolutely. I, right. I, I, that's great. So, so narrative. Narrative, okay. Um, I'm going to go for uh, 4.5 on this one. Okay. I found throughout it was riveting, taut, suspenseful. Um, the two-part structure was a refreshing take on what we have, or what we had before. As I mentioned that before as well, um, it was great to see some, like you know, like great, great to see a lot of characters fleshed out in their own little ways, and. Despite the villainous aspects of people like Kreb and Grant, we could also see the psychology behind them as well. You know, you know, despite some of the propagandic pieces that they might serve, right? <laughs> there, there was a kind of a understanding of the characters and who they were and what they were doing and why they they, they were 
doing it. They weren't kind of ambiguous Mr. Biggs, you know, in, yeah. in, in, in my opinion. And the narrative overall to me was just really riveting and I was really pulled into the story. Okay. And But as I mentioned, I take off, I, I won't give it a full five based on the fact that as much as I enjoyed the Istanbul interlude, I found that, like you, that it just didn't really feel like it was in the same book. It could have been in a separate novel and it didn't really drive the momentum of the story. It just kind of was a delaying tactic to build up suspense. And because I kind of saw the artifice of that, it took me out of the story a little bit. Um, not that I didn't enjoy those in particular sequences, but I think it kind of loses momentum. Once Bond gets back on the train, once Bond boards the World Express in um, Istanbul, however, the momentum is just, you know, it's it's full speed ahead. Mm-hmm. You think it picks up again? Absolutely. Well, I didn't go quite as high as you did. I, I went for a four instead of a four or five, and I'll explain why. Uh, I agree with that. First of all, I agree with everything you said, but I think that almost everything you said. But um, <clears throat> I had to take off marks for following um, that assassination line. It, yes, it's helpful to explain the bond between the characters, but I don't feel as though it really uh, it didn't push the narrative forward. I didn't. I would rather have seen other things. Maybe you know. I I don't know. I just felt a little bit dull. I guess. And then there was the the other thing was the bit with Grant, the way he was in. Kind of plugged in as the Bond villain to tell all. I am. Um, I I didn't buy that, and I can't just dock the character mark for that. I have to also think about it as a narrative trope. And um, I went four out of five. I mean, I love the opening. It's so very well written. I don't think the payoff with Grant does exist, even though you have come some way in convincing me that it it, it should be there the way it is. Um, I like the Smurf stuff. It's still a very good mark, four out of five. I just felt like, uh, although it was engaging, that midsection in Turkey stretched on a bit. Um, I thought it was a little convenient, lazy maybe on Fleming's part to be waiting so long for uh, Tanya to get in charge or to get in touch. But, you know, if she wasn't then, or if she hadn't been, then we maybe wouldn't have had as good development yeah. of Karen Bay. But, yeah. you know, I really liked the the, the sweep worked and the, the two-part narrative structure worked. So... I agree with you on those points, but I'm going four out of five. Okay. The one reason I justify the extra point five too in regards, and this is even regarding to that we know that whole episode in with the uh, with the gypsies, you know, and the assassination plot, is that I feel that Fleming. I think this is Fleming, the realist, the person who's worked in the, with these in these operations, who knows how they go down. Uh, writing here, and he's okay. not thinking in terms of traditional narrative structure, and I think it's because. It's almost like it's almost sort of a, a real time feel to it that they're waiting for Tanya t- Tanya to contact them, and Fleming felt that it just didn't seem right to jump right to that moment. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted to show Istanbul alive, and he wanted to show the spy network and all that stuff going on, and he wanted to show Karen Bay's character. So he kind of created this little colorful interlude, I think, because he wanted to show the passage of time and and the urgency of the situation and create that suspense. But again, it's revealing the artifice of it that kind of takes you out of the story. So I think it was a noble intention on on Fleming's part. So that's why I don't, you know, take off like another five percent on another five points on that, another another half a point on that. Right. So that's 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 my and I and again I gave you my reasons why I think that there is justification in the narrative why Grant does become a talking villain. I will say that that part of my minus fi- my minus point five would go to the fact that yes. I understand in your point too, where it's almost like 
Bond was he would just, he would just he would just go right for the kill right away, you know. But then how would we know that it was Grant, you know? So it just seems like me like Fleming realized that he set something up and he had to kind of give give a payoff to it. Yeah. And for some, yeah. uh, I guess he just felt like just having them just clash and fight it wasn't enough. He kind of had to show the the tete a tete about it as well. Mm-hmm. And that's that just seems to me that's not Fleming the realist there, uh, you know, who gave us this interlude sequence in real time. This is Fleming being a, like almost like a Hollywood screenwriter okay. and yeah, I agree and, with you. And, and, and doing that kind of inconsistency. So yeah. there's almost two writers here. There's Fleming the realist, the person who's worked in this business, and then there's Fleming the screenwriter slash novelist. Novelist, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to ba- obey basic narrative structure and conform to those tropes, you know? Yeah. And we are dealing with personal tastes at the end of the day anyway, like you were saying. Exactly. Exactly. I don't I – um, I guess though like the other thing to remember is that in a fight, there's no way that the literary bond is going to be able to take out Donovan Grant. It's just not going to happen because he's built up for us in the beginning of the story. And this is what I can't shake, right? So it doesn't matter how far we justify it. I can't shake it. He is a monster. He's a killer. He's he is ruthless, cold-blooded, asexual. Everything we've said already. And Bond is not Daniel Craig. He's not even Pierce Brosnan. Bond in yeah. these books is like David Niven, right? I mean, he is he he's described as tough, but only kind of tough. He's smarter than he is tough, right? I think he's more like Connery, more so. I I picture Connery when I read Fleming's Bond almost. We'll. I think we'll disagree on that for now, but um, we can come back. In terms of like, in terms of um, physical attributes, not in terms of like uh, personality. Right. Well, anyway, I mean, we're not really disagreeing very much. Um, it's just a little bit, and so I'm giving, I'm giving uh, the narrative four. You're giving a four five. Let's just move on and talk yeah. about the G. Go for it. The real Bond girl in this story, um, to me, was uh, Rosa Klebb. <laughs> uh, Can you – you can't really call her a girl, though. We, we've talked about her in adversaries. True, I know. No, to be honest, um, just I'm really joking. Oh, Tanya okay. is um, – <laughs> She's not a girl. A little, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to say I give it 3.5 on the girls. I don't know. They made Tanya a little more interesting than the film version of her in comparison, but – I, I just I don't know, like, Fleming didn't get into her head enough, in my opinion. And she seems, again, like a MacGuffin, you know? And she's just like the plot, a plot device and not really a character in her own way. And she, she we don't see her conflict in terms of, should I trust Bond? Or maybe this wasn't the right thing to do? Or, you know, there wasn't any conflict or any kind of growth in her character whatsoever, you know? And uh-huh. I just found her kind of really dull in that way. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I wasn't really into her as a character. And she was just kind of like... I was more concerned about Bond and Karen Bay, you know, and his emotional investment, you know, when it came to those, into those sequences. So in that regard, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of like the, the women. Uh, the, it was, I, it was interesting. Um, was the, I'm trying to think of the women in the story. I did like the gypsy camp, um, matron who was like, you know, feeding Bond from like, uh, <laughs> from the trough or whatever, you know, the, she uh, kept putting her fingers in a soup. I know exactly, and he had no problem with that. I found her yeah. kind of cool, and the Gypsy Girls seemed like they, they were that they, they were much more interesting uh, characters than Tanya was, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I I agreed with you actually, right down to the point five. I went three five for the girls as well, and Tatiana. I mean, she's well written, but what is there is is not really particularly strong. Uh, I the mean, film she, version was kind of dead on, actually. 
it was pretty dead on with her. She's naive, dedicated. She's an easy target for manipulation. Um, very conscious of her appearance, just like she is played in the film. Trained as a ballerina, hobbyist figure skater. Uh, Fleming's descriptions of her are obviously very sexualized, but he has a problem with her butt, which I find is interesting. I don't know why he went there. Flat, um, yeah. I guess he wanted. He, he likes the defects, and I think he likes he those, does. those. He those does. Defects. He points. He points out a defect, doesn't he? He likes to do that. Yeah. He would be the. Um, he's almost like a. I don't know if that's kind of the perfectionist in him, or or if it's just kind of the the stiff upper lip in him. But you know, you you feel like if you took him to Disneyland, he'd find a fucking problem with it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he would have a problem with <laughs> Disneyland. <laughs> You'd find you find more than one, but anyway, um, yeah. So I mean, her precedent for rule breaking, I thought, was foreshadowed pretty well. Her honesty is revealed quickly, um, but I, I do like the idea that she kind of she used to steal spoons and small utensils from restaurants. I thought that was yeah. an interesting character point because that also suggests that somewhere down the line she might break the rules of Spectre, right, or of Smirsh. Yeah, and they, and they, and and they never followed up on that on that. No, that's right. Really? Yeah, exactly. There's some good stuff laid out in the first part of the story that just aren't connected. Um, she's got pretty little gumption due to her role, I guess, as a Soviet spy in a bigger operation. So we, we can kind of understand and justify her naivety a little bit. Um, but in terms of her commanding presence, she's got... I mean, we're coming from Tiffany Case, you know, and she, this girl is... is, is I guess maybe Tiffany Case would chew this girl out and spit her up. You know, she like. would. But like you were saying, in her role as a Russian peasant girl, she she is what she needs to be, and she is probably what Fleming wants her to be. So it might be a little unfair of me to vote against her too heavily, uh, because she is just a deliberate plot construct at the end of the day. But she's weaker as a character, and like you said, she's just not well read. Um, there's not a lot of depth to her. Um, she's easy to like, but she's also... There was more depth to to the masseuse at the beginning, if, if, if anything. <laughs> Do you know what? I think you might be right there. There's certainly more intelligence because she's very shrewd and she's very observant. But um, And like you said, we never get into this girl's head. And I think that's that stream of consciousness that we get from the masseuse is very mature in writing. We don't get that when it comes to Tatiana at all. No, we don't. We don't get so, any. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she's she's pre-drawn. Largely, we know what she's going to do before she does it. And that's okay, I guess. But she falls pretty ridiculously for Bond. And, you know, this is supposed to be a mission, but it's kind of like, if I tell you it enough, you'll just go on and believe it. And she believes it. One thing we haven't talked, we should talk talk about in regard to oh, Tammy, too, just, I think. Just, is before, like... just before you go on about that, uh, I'll say oh, yeah. the last bit. Um, the two gypsy girls. Unfortunately, they're just not as impressive as the black chick from the Boneyard in *Live and Let Die*. So, um, no, unfortunately not. They're in interesting. No one tops the Boneyard girl. Nobody, not yet, anyway. So they're interesting, but not from a cultural point of view. Just purely from a male gaze kind of view. <laughs> anyway, what, what, what were you Laura saying? Laura Mulvey would not be amused. She wouldn't. What were you saying about something that uh, we need to think about when we talk about Tanya? Oh, yeah, about Tanya. But we're talking about, you know, Rosa Klebb's whole negligee experience uh, that occurred there. Um, again, that's another example to me of Tanya just being set up as a, as a sexualized object, you know, is because Klebb and Pond uh, both have sexual kind of uh, attraction for her. Yes, that's true. What do you think about so we, if, if, we, if we consider Klebb a Bond girl in this, in this capacity? <laughs> what do you think about her little twir twirl there? I mean... <laughs> um... 
I don't know. It's hard for was me that to see. Was that just trying to make them ridiculous? Like, make the Russians both seem ridiculous? Like, to I, me, it no, kind of took, no. some, of the, it took, I think it took some of the, the gravitas out of her character. It, it didn't for me. It took what – what I think it did is played into that propaganda that we were trying to say. I think it uh, it made her seem very repulsive and perverted, which – Yes. which aided in constructing this monstrous kind of gross figure. And if you look at propaganda posters from the time, not quite yes. the time, 10, 10 years previously, towards the end of World War II, I mean, you've got you've got a lot of ugly type of monstrous depictions of Russians and Germans and English for that matter. But yeah. I think it's kind of part of that whole agenda. Um, I found the fact that she was a neuter I found was interesting though because Kronstein sizes her up across from the table as being this woman who you know i think he's i think he says that for her sex was just an itch and something that she needed to just you know satiate occasionally but with respect to the way she uh, yeah she puts on this negligee the, the whole scene of her having to taste the goods before she sends tanya off on this air <laughs> it was it was kind of weird man like uh, and Tasting the goods, yeah, that's definitely a, a, a good setup for that whole scene now, now that I think about it. You, it was you convinced strange. me on, yeah, I, I kind of, I appreciate that moment a little bit more now than I did before. Anyway, I don't know, but, um, right, so we're both at 3.5 for that, so so far there's only a half point separating the two of us. Let's move on to locations, go ahead. Um, this is another solid five for me. I'm sorry, you can't top Istanbul, the Golden Horn, the catacombs under the city, the Russian consulate, uh, the gypsy camp, uh, just the skyline itself, the the travel, the, the fantastic travelogue of the Oriental Express, uh, Fleming's depictions of, of Moscow, which I guarantee you are based on his own times visiting there. Um, when he was a journalist in the 30s, where Stalin yeah. uh, apologized for not being able to meet him through a note. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Like I could talk about you know just the details of some of the scenery in, in his book of of it, and it's just, it just kind of just blows me away in, in the capacity of how what a great storyteller is um, Fleming when it comes to these sort of narratives. And I just wanted to read you just this one section here. I think that just captures. Um, momentum, okay. and at the same time, um, this whole idea about when they're when, when he's flying to Istanbul and he's flying over the gray elephant, um, you know, like of the Alps, of the Alps, you know, and just how he visualizes it and how he goes down and each. I I, I just find every travelogue scene, just the plane travel scenes, are just the most fantastic parts of the novel for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they just pull you right in, like you're right there and you're experiencing it with him, you know. Um, I'll just go to you right now to this uh, passage that I highlighted. Um, Just a moment. Yeah. So they hammered into the mountains of Slovenia where the apple trees and the chalets were almost Austrian. The train labored and way through Ljubljana. The girl awoke. They had breakfast of fried eggs and hard brown bread and coffee that that was mostly shikari. The car was full of cheerful English and American tourists from the Adriatic coast, and Bond thought with a lift of the heart that by the afternoon they would be over the frontier into Western Europe, and the third dangerous night was gone. He slept until Susanna, the hard-faced Yugoslav plainclothes man, came on board. Then Yugoslavia was gone, and Pegurelli came, and the first smell of the soft life with the happy jabbering Italian officials and the carefree upturned faces of the station crowd. The new diesel electric engine gave a slap-happy whistle, the meadow of brown hands fluttered, and they were loping easily down into Venezia towards the distant sparkle of Trieste and the gay blue of the Adriatic. That, to me, 
is just how Fleming takes the narrative and the uh, the characters and all the all the parts of the angle to me, I guess you, as you would say, in just in one passage. And locales is where he excels, and I give five out of five on the locales here. Okay, so in, in order for, in order for top marks to come from locales, really anything above a four. I think an eighty percent and above is a very good mark for location. But if um, if if you're given a five, then what you're basically telling me, if I may use a euphemism, is that this book succeeded in taking you on a trip. Oh, it it, it did it did succeed to me. I was pulled all the way through. Good, Mom. And even and, and even in the interludes, I was still I was still reading the interludes because just the whole the whole environs of the whole uh, narrative uh, was fascinating and alluring to me um well i'm i'm glad to hear you say that and the enthusiasm that you pull from it is quite interesting um it's nice to hear i didn't go quite as high as you did for the locations i gave it a mark of four out of five i liked um i I, I like the istanbul stuff i thought the hotel the, the little finesse points in the hotel you know about the the decorations the color schemes i like that kind of stuff and it can only come from a traveler you know like you're saying a man who's been there and seen that the the, the spires of Russia, uh, of Moscow rather. I mean, these things are all nicely rendered, but they're they're done with, uh, you know, a touch of um, creativity as well. And I don't think that the Eastern Europe stuff is quite as delicious as you do. Um, I've been on a train through Eastern Europe and I haven't traveled this one, but I've been as far as Slovenia and I can attest to kind of some of the descriptions that he gives. I've seen them myself. I... I felt that the Istanbul stuff, the location stuff, like when Bond was on his patio looking out over the Golden Horn and watching the sunset and drinking this over cup. the Bosporus and all the that. Bosporus, yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought that stuff was wonderful. I didn't get as much out of the Orient Express trip as I would have liked to, given its interior setting. Like, I, I love the idea of setting action on a train, of course, because it's a closed environment and something has to happen. You can't avoid the conflict, right, that's coming. I like that stuff, but... Um, you know, the cabin interior uh, was not really focused on the way I would have liked to have seen. The external environments were great. The internal environments lacked a little bit once we left Istanbul. The airplane scene was great. I agree with you that the um, the travel writing um, also grounds Bond as a realist and as a pragmatist and makes him a fearful human when he's flying in a thunderstorm, you know, on his way to Istanbul. I like that stuff. It helps you connect with the character. And so for that respect, the location is really cool. Um, the Ritz Hotel in Paris and the route that uh, – or sorry, the Ritz Hotel in Paris was nice. I like that bit with um, you know the elevator up to meeting uh, Rosa Kleb, yeah. And the route that uh, Bond took from Turkey to Greece to Macedonia to Belgrade to Croatia, Slovenia, Italy, Switzerland, and then France – I mean, it was, you know, grandiose, it was dynamic, it was romantic with a capital R, but I didn't get quite as much out of the details that you did. And it's not because I've been on a trip on a train through Eastern Europe. I think it has more to do with the fact that these points didn't stand out for me the way that the Harlem descriptions did, the way that the, um, <clears throat> what, um, the bits in uh, e- even the south of France, you know, in Casino Royale, those stood out for me in a different sort of way. I... I thought that it was a whistle stop through the Orient Express, and it had to be because it was literally a whistle stop train ride. But 
No, I, di- I, did, I didn't get a five out of it, but I got a four. Definitely a strong four for the locations, and I think that's a good mark. I'm not unhappy with it, but I couldn't bring myself to go further than that. It would have just been playing on... Like, I would have been given it a five for the scenes that I really liked. You know what I mean? I see, I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I like your point about the whistle-stop journey, about how you kind of get brief flashes of these places. But to me, I think that kind of like kind of what, what the point of the whole scenario was. And that's why I think in terms of how the narrative was to serve these locations, it did it in a way that to me worked with the novel and that kind of excelled it for me because we're not supposed to see fully detailed versions of these places. He wants to get the capture the flavor that we are arriving on these places. And he wants to create a realism with these locales. And that's what I kind of, I, I, I liked about it. I also liked how like, you know, the narrative is the, the story, the writing portrays, you know, when they're in, uh, they're in very kind of like the harsh, um, mountainous areas as when like there's like three there's by this point there's two agents there's two Russian agents on the train and there's a lot of suspense and Karim dies before they reach Belgrade and all that right yeah but the real danger didn't really happen until once they were onto the Adriatic into new into kind of friendlier yeah. territory yeah because that's where they encounter Grant in Trieste right that's right uh, so-called friendly figure that appears on the train so there was a, I think there was a really good juxtaposition of of, of of the landscape and of the narrative going on in the train itself I just found that really interesting. Um, I liked in, in Istanbul, I liked the gypsy camp. I liked how it was one of those kind of like those uh, little shoddy cafes you see. Like, you know, remember we were in Rome off the Appian Way where we rented yeah. bicycles. That's I right. Mean, there, it was kind of like was, that. It was like that. But then you go to, and then you just go in the coffee shop and you come out the back and then all of a sudden you're in a gypsy camp, you know, like just all of a sudden just going through a little gate, you know, and there's all the rows of the family all meeting there and stuff. And I liked the, the detail of that. Uh, um, maybe, maybe I'll need to read it, read that section again, be, you know, because, yeah. and like the, and the, and the hotel, the, uh, the crystal palace or whatever. Yeah. The, the crystal uh, the, palace was great. The, 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 the fly blown, the fly blown, you know, plants in, in the lobby and the, and, 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 and the rude, uh, attendant there and stuff like that. Uh, uh, it just kind of, I don't know. It was just very vivid and realistic description. I think that was Fleming was going with it compared to the much more exoticized, I guess, versions of, uh, of being in a place for a long amount of time that he did in the other stories, you know. Well, you've and done a nice I, job. I, yeah, I think he does a great, he did a great job encapsulating all these many locations into one story. Where you were, whereas in other stories, where in other ones, maybe it's because the quantity of 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 the low of the of the low locales just, I guess, was 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 what would have made it really strong in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I also found that. Um, even though there was quantity, I still think there was quality as well. Because usually they say, you know, quantity and not quality. But I think there was kind of a great mixture of both there. Good. So I think that's that's why I, I, I that's I think that's why I give I give I give credit for you know giving that these these flash these kind of brief flashes of locale in a small package where you can't really go to go into all the uh, the details you would like to to make it vivid. You know. Well, I would say that you've probably drawn me up to a four point. Two four four point two four, but I'm two, not. What, what about two five? <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there because that'll bring me up to a four five. So we'll just stay where we are. But no, I mean you justify your decision, and I like what you're saying. I agree with you, and like I'm saying, uh, I might go back and look at some of those passages again of the Orient Express. Uh, we'll we'll see how we feel about it when I go back on a pre-read, but. And we'll have a chance to review all of our scores by the time we're finished this series at the end. But let's move on to e equipment. This is our last category, 
uh, we've got one, two, three, four already done of our angle, and now we're on to the E. So you want to go, or do you want me to start? Um, you go ahead this time. Okay. Equipment. Um, well, <clears throat> I'm going to let you say something about the Q-Branch case if you want to, but it's full of stuff. Uh, we've got an ammo, um, ammo kind of hidden into the lining. We've got two knives made by Wilkinson Sword, the... Contemporary, right. the contemporary razor company now it's interesting to see that they had their, <laughs> that they had their start in proper blades um, <laughs> because the ones that I use are shit um, gold coins uh, kept in this case we've got the silencer the, the uh, sovereigns right the sovereigns yep the silencer being held in a shaving kit which Bond thinks yeah. is pretty cool uh, you've got Karim's walking stick which turns into a kind of in, an infrared rifle you've got the submarine periscope that he's had put in so that he can spy on the Russians. That's a really cool little device. The Spectre machine itself, although it's a MacGuffin, it's an important piece of decryption, um, you know, technology. So that's cool. Grant's gun, that's kind of like a book gun, is interesting. Yeah, Uh, that was really interesting. I couldn't really visualize that. And to me, it kind of almost, it almost took me out of that. That was the one sequence to me that was really was just weird was the book gun. I just... I guess in terms of realism, where Fleming was kind of go for the strong sense of realism in this yeah, story. Didn't really. There fit. are moments here where some of the equipment just seemed like really like almost later James Bond type gadgets, <laughs> yeah, you know, like Roger Moore type stuff. But it's uh, exactly yeah, a little hyperbolic. But hey, it was okay. I like Bond's book and cigarette case defense. I know it's not quite, it's not a piece of equipment, but the way he's resourceful with the equipment, I think, really stands yes. out in this book. Kleb's needles. And her boots. Um, we get to, you know, see the tricks of the Soviet trade as well, and I really like that. I like the fact that Fleming gives you a look into kind of how another um, national, or in this case, I suppose, um, enemy uh, invest. Um, sorry, intelligence um, organization would would kind of equip their officers. I thought that was cool. I like the needles, the poison-tipped uh, boot dart, and that was all really cool. But like I said, although the equipment, and it seems as though Fleming went on a limb deliberately to expand his uh, arsenal here in terms of equipment, but all of that would have fallen flat on its face if it wasn't used properly. And I think that the equipment use in this novel is really uh, appropriate and it's resourceful. And for that reason, I found it difficult to fault. I went five out of five. I went to 4.5 out of 5, mostly for the reasons that you stated. But I just found some of the, the equipment that we talked about, like the 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 the, the telephone um, shotgun and oh yes, uh, that's right, I forgot the, about that one. Like, why not just have a shotgun under the desk? You know, like or you know, it just it just seemed to me like just kind of like a kind of a a whimsical kind of. Uh, a, a whimsical fancy just took over Fleming in that moment and he wanted to do that, you know, like, uh, yeah, there's the point of, you know, where, you be, where you're displaying secret agents and there's a point where like next bond will have a shoe like Maxwell smart, you know, like it just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just got kind of the point to be where it's almost like there's a little bit of parody there. And I just, I don't know. It kind of took me out of that. I did like the, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, bag with the, uh, sovereigns and the Wilkinson knives mm-hmm. and the silencer in the shaving kit. I did like Karim get walking stick turned into a a rifle when they took out Galenku. Um, the the uh, and the use of knives was 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 really interesting as 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 as, as well. Um, I liked um, the the uh, the the very kind of like crafty Bulgarian kind of like 
guerrilla warfare that they that they utilize, like throwing the uh, limpet mine on Karim's house and trying to blow him up through the you know by, by his proximity. That was kind of neat. Um, just those little de- just just those little details. Um, again, we have Grant's uh, War and Peace book. Um, yeah, that was cool, just, wasn't it? The way that just kind of showed up. That was just yeah, like dumb dumb bullets. I wasn't quite sure what they were. It's almost because he used it to kind of shoot uh, his his um, Bond's wristwatch, right? Yeah. Do you know what? I'm glad that you mentioned that. That was a weird scene. And if if you'll indulge me for a minute, I, I want to talk to you about that because that whole the whole thing, I didn't quite get what was going on there. Like Bond's wrists exploded, but like what what was that about? I'm going to read that section for you. And there was there was glass and there was glass flying, and it's because the dum dum bullet hit the wristwatch face and gets the shadow of a glass on there, basically. Yeah, like and, okay. and so his arm and and his arm and his hand was was injured because of the impact of the dum dum bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, now it was the it was the Beretta though that that he fired through through the book to shoot Bond in the heart though. That's why what, what I understand because it w- it would muffle the sound of the gun, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That, the description about the blue lick of flame in the dark when they went into the tunnel. That was great visuals, by the way. You like that part? Yeah, I did like that part. I like that, that very kind of simple, stated kind of eloquence. Anyway, I can't uh, I can't find the section. But yeah, okay, it doesn't matter. It was just a weird bit where the like Bond's wrist exploded and then they had their conversation. It was kind of strange. Yeah, the whole book thing, I don't know what if like where he got the reference to that or where he came up with that like it was very it was very it was very interesting because what kills grant is when he takes the book and he fires it in grant's face several times right Mm -hmm. that's right so well no 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 what what kills him is where he takes the knife out of the case and he hits ephemeral artery i think and he drains 10 pints of blood from his body that's right. Yeah, he hits him in like in in the upper calf or something like that, right? Mm, where, think, where the femoral, yeah, where the femoral yeah. artery is. But and and and, I, and then I guess the the uh, dum dum bullets were just used to kind of get him off of him, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, do you want me to tell you our totals here? Absolutely. Let, let's let's tally them up. Well, I can now say, Josh, that. Of the five books we've read, both of us independently like From Russia With Love more than any other James Bond book, according to our scoring index. And (laughs) although there were parts of Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die that I liked more, this book matched uh, or beat my top score by a full point and a half. So I went 21.5 and you, sir, you felt 22.5. So 22.5 out of 25. Wow. I feel in terms of grading that fits from us with love pretty well, in my opinion. Yeah, that is good. Um, both of us then generally would have felt that there's weaknesses to the story, but they're not big ones. And no. I think that probably does summarize quite well what we said, didn't it, over the past two hours? I think we did too. I think we discussed its weaknesses and we discussed its strengths, which there are a lot of. And uh, I think we both, you know, we both kind of convinced about other aspects of the storyline that we quite didn't get on a, on both our ends. So there was some really good discussion to be had here. And I, I think that um, we sussed out the book pretty well. And, yep. you know, I, and, and I think without going into detail, like in the plot summaries that we had before, I think we, I think we were able to kind of give a vague impression of the story and not, you know, and not kind of spoil all the, the little details and nuances. 
you know, that can rob you from excitement of the story, you know, you know, if you already know those things. Yes. And it's, it's tempting to do that. It's tempting to go into all the details, but we really don't need to. I suppose what, what's left then is to see what happens next, because we were left with yes. the first ever proper Fleming sweep, where we're going to be waiting not just to the next page, but for perhaps the next year to find out what happens to Bond, if at all. His contemporary readers may not have known that Bond was coming back because there was no such thing as the internet, you know, I mean... And no James Bond will return in the end credits. No, that's right. Good point. No James Bond will return at the end of the book. It doesn't say that. So we just, you know, we know that he returns in Dr. No, and it'll be interesting to see how he was removed from this um, situation where Kleb left him dying. But Kleb, we should probably have also said at the end of the book, was kind of... Uh, collected by uh, Mathis and the French authorities, and Bond was lying on the floor, presumably dead or close to death. So I'm guessing, although I read Dr. No when I was a you know younger guy, um, I don't remember much about it, only that I really liked it. So I'm really looking forward to Dr. No. But, Me too. But uh, I, I'm presuming, I'm guessing that Mathis had some hand in getting Bond back in, onto his feet. But we'll have to wait and see. Any closing remarks? Um, no, I think we pretty much discussed, you know, um, what you said. I'm excited about Dr. No. And um, I, I really enjoyed, you know, taking a much a lot of the task and giving it a good, you know, a good interrogation. And I think it came out quite lucky in the interrogation. No, not not lucky. I think we gleaned what we needed from it uh, to give it the high marks that it deserves. So I'm I'm very content with uh, everything that has gone, gone so, so, so far on this on this session. Yeah. I think it was good, BFG. I think we did a good job with this one. Uh, well, we've done a good job with all of them, but I think we did a really good job with this one. It's a tough book because it is, um, as I already said, posterity's favorite or one of posterity's favorites. Uh, this book is regarded as one of the best that Fleming wrote, and I didn't go into reading it thinking that it would end up necessarily being one of mine, but it turns out that, yeah, From Russia With Love is just a, just a pretty damn good book. And I think there's a lot in here for fans of the the series, the character, but also as it's, you know, almost like an artifact of the Cold War. It yes. it, it highlights a lot of interesting relationships politically and um, gives you a look into certain features of national identity. And I like that. I think it's really cool. I agree, and I think it's definitely it's Fleming at his prime as a writer. I think he really, I think he was, I, I think he was really caught into this book and writing about it, and his own passions and feelings they're they're evident in the storyline and in the narrative, right. and in the writing as a whole. And and I think that's I think that's what brought it over the top for me. Right, buddy. Until next time, Doctor No, uh, coming up soon in about a month's time. Uh, it's goodbye from Bowman here in Scotland, and uh, au revoir from Josh in Ottawa. 